This call is being recorded. We good. Four. All right. So we shall. Let me cut this butt on real quick. Yeah, the theme and the leading, and that'll be everything. All right. We on. Go ahead. You done right. mute everything? Yeah, I mute everybody, right? So we can get it cracking. All right. Let's go. I put a spell on you. Because you're mine. Stop the things you do. <laughs> What's up? types of toxic cookware to avoid and four safe alternatives most people these days are well aware of the importance of eating healthy however not everyone knows that the cookware you use to prepare your dishes is just as important as the food itself even the healthiest diet can result in severe health complication if your pots and pans are toxic if you're ready to find out what those dangers are, which cookware to avoid, and what safer alternatives you can replace them with, then keep on watching. 1. Teflon Cookware Teflon is probably the biggest offender on this list, so we'll start off strong. Many people choose this non-stick material because it's convenient and easy to find, yet they have no idea that it's also the most dangerous. The non-stick properties of Teflon cookware are achieved with a coating of PTFE, 
or polytetrafluoroethylene. This is a plastic polymer that, when heated above 572 degrees Fahrenheit, starts to release toxins. These toxic fumes lead to flu-like symptoms called polymer fume fever, informally known as Teflon flu. People begin to suffer from headaches, chills, and high temperature. Because Teflon fumes do the most damage on the lungs, people usually feel tightness in their chest and start coughing. The symptoms don't even appear right after a person has breathed in the fumes, but a couple of hours later. And it's not just dangerous to people. Teflon fumes are also fatal to pet birds, like parrots. Another chemical compound found in Teflon cookware is PFOA, or perfluorooctanoic acid. This man-made chemical is also known as C8. It's especially threatening since it tends to stay in the body, as well as the environment, for long periods of time. Recent studies both in the lab and on humans have found a link between this substance and several types of cancer, including breast, prostate, and ovarian cancer. While it's believed that the PFOA present in Teflon products is in such small amounts that it poses no threat to people, it's worth noting that this stuff is also found in tons of other things you come in contact with every single day, like the water you drink. The amount depends on the area where you live, but in any case, it's best to limit your exposure to PFOA if you can. You can find nonstick cookware that's free of PTFE and PFOA, but it's usually coated with something like granite. This coating is safe to use as long as it's intact, but unfortunately, it's thin and chips easily. As soon as it starts coming off, you have to stop using that cookware item immediately. Try this safe alternative instead, real cast iron. This is a non-toxic cooking option that truly withstands the test of time. It heats well and evenly throughout. Plus, cast iron cookware even comes in non-stick varieties. It doesn't leak anything toxic into your food and is actually a nice natural way to increase your body's iron levels. And if your body doesn't need an iron boost, then you can try enameled cast iron cookware, which is just as safe and convenient to use. 2. Aluminum Cookware and Aluminum Foil It's no surprise that aluminum is so widely used. Besides being the most abundant metal out there, it's also very strong, lightweight, versatile, and recyclable. However, it's not without hidden dangers. Aluminum is a neurotoxic material. Elevated levels of aluminum in the body have been linked to several nervous system diseases, including Alzheimer's and ALS. Though aluminum cookware is usually coated, the coating is prone to chipping, allowing the toxic metal to get right into your food. As for aluminum foil, using it while cooking is even more dangerous. In fact, there's an established safe amount of aluminum the human body can manage daily, and that's 20 milligrams per pound of body weight a day. When you wrap your food in aluminum foil and cook it this way, the amount of this substance that leaks into the food significantly exceeds the permissible level. And if you add acidic lemon to the fish you're baking, it starts aggressively breaking down layers and layers of aluminum, letting them seep into your dinner. That's why you should use foil only to wrap cold foods and leftovers in. Try this safe alternative instead, glass cookware. This is another safe option to consider. It'll never release anything toxic when heated, 
it doesn't hold on to any old flavors or odors. And it's not only durable, but also eco-friendly. The only downside of glass cookware is that it isn't non-stick. But that's just a small price to pay for your health and safety. 3. Copper Cookware You've probably seen copper cookware in stores and noticed how pretty it was. You're likely to have heard of its amazing conductive properties that allow for quick and even heating. But did you know that copper can actually be dangerous when used in cookware? Just like with a lot of metals, the human body needs copper in small amounts. But if the body gets too much of the stuff, it can lead to life-threatening complications. And copper cookware, especially when it isn't coated, can easily send you to the ER with a bad case of metal poisoning. And that's because it can release copper when you cook acidic foods. So if you've just enjoyed some fish and lemon juice or stewed tomatoes cooked with an uncoated copper pot, and you find yourself suffering from extremely unpleasant symptoms such as vomiting blood, lightheadedness, yellowy skin, or gastrointestinal distress, among others, call 911 immediately. And even if your cookware is coated, the coating often contains nickel, which is another toxic element. Nickel exposure can lead to problems with the liver and kidneys. It can also cause high blood pressure, heart disease, and an increased risk of lung cancer. Try this safe alternative instead, stainless steel. This is a great cookware option. It's relatively lightweight, scratch-resistant, and comes in non-stick varieties. It'll also last you a really long time. Just make sure you're buying food-grade stainless steel, since this is the only type that doesn't contain any nickel or chromium. 4. Ceramic-Coated Cookware This type of cookware looks nice and seems like a safe option at first. After all, 100% ceramic is completely safe for cooking. However, ceramic coating usually hides some pretty nasty stuff in it. Soft ceramic coating isn't durable enough and starts chipping after a few months of daily use. When this happens, lead and cadmium sometimes found in the coating will end up in your food and thus in your body. Lead poisoning is one of the most dangerous types of metal poisoning and can result in abdominal pain, headaches, infertility, and often other health complications. In severe cases, it can even lead to coma and death. As for cadmium, it's toxic even in the tiniest amounts. If it gets into your body, it'll negatively impact all your various systems, starting with the cardiovascular and reproductive ones, and then moving on to your kidneys, eyes, and brain. In men, it messes with testosterone levels and damages prostate function. It can also do a real number on your bones. Yeah, none of this sounds very pleasant, does it? Even when ceramic coating is lead-free or doesn't contain cadmium, chipped cookware can still present a danger because it's usually neurotoxic aluminum hiding under that coating. Try this safe alternative instead, 100% ceramic cookware. This is one of the best and safest options out there since it's made with completely natural materials. It isn't toxic and it won't chip or peel off. It's also non-stick and dishwasher safe. Its only downside is that 100% ceramic can be pretty costly, but it will last you a very long time. Plus, after everything we've talked about today and all those horrible symptoms caused by toxic cookware, don't you think it's worth the investment? 
Did any of your cookware make this blacklist? Or do you use the safe alternatives? Which one's your favorite? Tell us in the comments below. Don't forget to click subscribe to stay on the bright side of life. What did you say? We at war? <laughs> well, I remember when the first plane hit, I was on set doing this uh, soap opera called uh, The Guiding Light. Right? Oh, okay. I know that well. And they said, oh, so you won't believe this. A plane accidentally ran into the World Trade Center. I said, accident? I said, yeah, he would have to lose his eyesight mid-flight to miss a building that big. Yeah. And yeah. that's how I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's how in the beginning because you were thinking, like, no, that you can't do. Yeah, and you know, and and I remember it, man. And I was looking up because we had the TV on, but I but I was just laying there. But it was, but it was. The one, the turned on, yeah. Like, wow. Yeah, and the buildings collapsed, and then. So, what do you think overall about nine eleven? Well, you know, when you stop and think about it, brother, if you know history and if you understand history. In, in my mind, what I was saying was, look what's falling on the African burial ground, because that's an African burial ground down there. You know, they found bones not too long ago, a couple years back. They didn't talk about it much. It just came up, and then they didn't do anything more with it. But they found bones under the ground. And um, it could not have been the people that were in the building. Jenny, you, you there? Did we lose you? I think so. Okay, we might have. Give me one second. Let me see if I can get in contact with him. Give me one moment.
Okay. Um, I'm waiting for him to call back in. I tried to reach him and didn't get an answer, so I don't know if he's actually thinking he's still on the line with us, so I'm texting him now, and we're going to see if we can get him back on because it looks like his call dropped off. Can you hear me? Yep, I hear you now. You good. Okay, that's that's crazy. Okay, well, where, where did you know we... we stop that? It stopped it where he um where uh Baba Kamala said uh there were bodies underneath the okay. World Trade Center. That's wow. Yeah, right. dropped you right off. Overall about nine eleven. Let's start here. Well, right. you know, when you stop and think about it, brother, if you know history and if you understand history, in in my mind, what I was saying was look what's falling on the African burial ground, because that's an African burial ground down there. You know, they found bones. Not too long ago, a couple of years back, they didn't talk about it much. It just came up and then they didn't do anything more with it. But they found bones under the ground. And um, it could not have been the people that were in the building. Those were black bones. Those were African bones. Wow. Were they able to decipher what period? They shut it down. They shut all news about that down. This happened maybe five years ago. And you see, the bodies that were in the building that went through that were vaporized. So bones could not have been left behind. Mm. So to find bones when they were going to build the new towers, those bones had to have been there before uh, 2001. All down there, see, down there was all swamp at one time. Oh, and they did it sort of like New Orleans, put trash there to build on top of the trash. Yeah, they, they built on top of that in order to build that business area. But that was Africans and Jews were not allowed to be buried in New York proper. So they had to be buried down there. That's why that's an African burial ground was because blacks and Jews were not allowed to be buried in the city unless they owned a property, which is Senegal Village, which is in Central Park. That's what Central Park. Can you break that down for me? Well, well, it's Senegal Village. It's not Senegal Village because that was first purchased by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So that 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 area basically, in, in fact, I have something up online that I did there. My son and I did a documentary on Senegal Village. It's not Seneca Village. Okay, because yeah, my understanding is Seneca. Yeah, the way it's pronounced. But Seneca. to take your attention away from the realities of that was a uh, little African village. That was an African city down there, and it was purchased by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's why it's called Senegal Village. Do you know the parameter of the village and at what time the village was up? Well, you're well, you're dealing with the you know with like late 1700s, early 1800s, just a whole scope of things. And you're, you're, you're looking at, and, and again, I may be off some, but it's in the 80s. And it ran between like Central Park uh, West and 7th Avenue. And they had their own businesses. And it, again, it was the church that set it up. They had their own schools, had their own businesses. So we're talking uh, post-slavery at this time or pre-slavery? Well, you're talking about a, a, a continuum because remember, there was enslavement in New York coming up into the 1700s going into the It stopped again, Jenna. Sound went out.
Let me see if I can, I don't know what this thing is doing tonight. Excuse me for the technical difficulties. Yep, I don't see him again. I wonder if he got, yeah, he probably got dropped off. Give me one second. I'm going to try and reach him again. Sorry about the tech difficulties, folks. Yo, can you hear me now? Can yep, you hear me now? Yeah, I hear you now. Hold on, yo. We're going we gonna to back it up and try this one more time, yo. You know where to stop that? Yeah. I'm going to just okay, go cool. a little okay. ahead. Park. Yes. Okay. That's where the docks used to be where they would take, bring the Africans. And they would march them across to the other side of New York, which, is, which would be Wall Street where they would be uh, sold uh, in Wall Street. That, and, you know, when you're dealing with stocks and bonds, you know, the, you know, the thing is that Africans were considered to be chattel because they also sold cattle. They sold a lot of things, but they sold black folk. Mm-hmm. And so basically stocks and bonds comes from livestock in bondage. See, it's right in front of us, but it's just that unless you zero in on the conversation you you miss certain important points to understand it's veiled it's yeah. really veiled and also because they brought so many africans over many times they could not house everybody in wall street cuz you know there's prisons under the stock exchange building yeah yeah um the movie by bruce willis shows it um die hard there's there's a scene in one of those movies where he's underneath the stock exchange where you see the real prisons. That's where they used to keep the Africans before they brought them up to sell them. But there were some Africans that they brought so many over at one time that they literally just had to drop them off into little uh, prisons along the street from Battery Park going over to Wall Street. So today, guess what that street's called? Chamber Street. Ah, yes. So that's where they used to put, that was a, those were little prisons at one time where they held Africans. And then when it was time to sell them, they would take them across Chambers Street into Wall Street on the stock exchange and sell them. So the actual stock exchange, they used to trade slaves there. Yes, yes. They sold them. Sold slaves there. Yeah, yeah. That was the first stock exchange. It was livestock or black folk because they considered black folk like chattel. So they were like livestock. I I remember being in, uh, my wife and I, we were in Charleston, South Carolina Mm. for a wedding and. uh, they have the auction block, the, the block right there. It's yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. But to think that it's in here in the metropolis of New York City. Right here in New York. Black folk built Broadway and Broad Street. They they also built um, that that's the Bowery. Now, with America, were Africans here before or were we brought here, as the story tells us, or were we already here? All of them are the same. We came in waves. The first peoples to come, the first peoples to people the planet were Africans. 
Paleo-Americans, if you want to go to America, the Paleo-Americans were the first here. These were an African people. The second wave was the Clovis Folsom people. They were an African people. The Algonquin, they were an African, but they were in modification of themselves, having lived in different areas. And of course, their pigments going to change, their hair texture are going to change, things are going to change on them. But they're still African. Pretty much like what we would consider to be African-American today in all of our mixtures, the way we look. Jamaicans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, that mixture. Closer to black, though. And then you have the Inuit or the Eskimo, which is the fourth migration. But the people we know of today, we call Native Americans. They are Asians that came to avoid the Mongolian invasion of Asia they came across the Bering Strait and then peopled America, and then they took in the, the stock of what was in America, and that's who we know as Native Americans today. But there is evidence of Africans over 100,000 years ago in America. There's a, there's a woman they found in San Diego, California, um, a black woman, and her bones were dated to be 90,000 years old. The original person that California is named after is Queen Khalifa, which is an African woman. King Kamehameha of Hawaii was a black man. And so we're dealing with a reality here, but we don't know our history. And when someone tells a perfect lie, the truth is unbelievable. Yes, Hotep family, you know, I, you know, I encourage you to uh, uh, look to Amazon for my uh, new book. It's my second book, Spirituality Before Religions. And uh, it, it explores spirituality before religions existed. And it um, goes from the very beginning of time, even before the beginning began, until what we're experiencing today. So I encourage you to go to Amazon and download Spirituality Before Religions. Imagination is the spirit of success. Everybody can have road, road information. You could have three musicians, three artists, three scientists, three computer engineers all sit down and study their craft. But what's going to make them that unique person is their imagination to imagine what it is within that, within them, connected with what they're looking at. That's going to make them the unique person that they need to be. I, I once heard someone speak of the difference between being great and greatest. People who are great do great things. And they are, be, they are to be applauded for their achievements. But to be the greatest is to be able to perceive what's going to happen three seconds before it happens. Muhammad Ali was the greatest because when he went into that ring with somebody, he knew three seconds before they did what they did, what they were going to do, and he did something to stop them from doing it. When you look at the imagination of the greatest thinkers, they had the same minds everyone else had, but they could think three seconds ahead of everyone else to be able to put in place something before anyone else could do it. That's imagination. And each of us has it. And each of us can contribute this. There is room for all of us in this process. 
That's why the creator gave it to us, because everyone has their own imagination and everyone can contribute through their own imagination. We're living in this society that is extremely competitive, where you can only have one person up on the top of the hill. Africans said, we ain't on a hill. We're on a plateau. And on a plateau, there's room for everybody. When you have a mountain, only one person can be there. That is the premise of white supremacy. There's only one great person, and that's a white person. What Africans said is a plateau. Everybody is great. And when you perceive this, then what happens is that your success is my success. And if I can help you, I'm helping myself. You see, there is sunshine and there's moonlight. The moon don't have no shine. The light that the moon has is sunshine. And so therefore, when the sun shines on the moon, the moon has moonlight. And it so happens in life that we all can't be the sun every day. But if I'm the sun on one day and I reach out to someone else and I shine on someone else and they have light, then we both bask in light and sunshine. Tomorrow, the person that was the moon yesterday may be the sun and I may be the moon. And if that moon remembers me when I was the sun, they'll shine on me. Shine on me. And in that shine, we all can be seen. That's what our ancestors were talking about. And that's success. Success is your success. My success is your success. If I can help you, I am helping myself. But with competition, as opposed to cooperation, the right mind cooperates, doesn't compete. And if I do compete, which I do, I compete with myself. So when I got up this morning, I saw myself as the better person that went to bed last night. And I look forward to going to bed tonight being the better person than who woke up this morning. My competition is an inner competition to constantly be searching, constantly raw searching, constantly looking for that unique gift within me to move forward in life. And as I begin to move towards this journey that I'm on, it, in my assisting other people, we're all walking together in this. Can freedom become a burden too heavy for man to bear, something he tries to escape from? Man is a creature forever pulled between two extremes, between what some have called our inner God and our inner worm. Our inner God represents our powers of imagination and our symbolic awareness, which together grant us the ability to project into the future and to envisage almost limitless possibilities. Our inner God offers us the gift of psychological freedom. It shows us what we could be and tells us that the creation of our destiny is at least partly in our hands if we can but move forward into the realm of the possible. But alongside our inner God exists our inner worm, and this is the side of us which fears freedom and keeps us tied, like all other animals, to a limited set of behaviors and a limited set of possibilities. Unfortunately, for many it is our inner worm, not our inner God, which is the ruling factor of our life. 
We fear psychological freedom more than we desire it, and in this video we are going to investigate why. Nothing has ever been more insupportable for a man and a human society than freedom. Man is tormented by no greater anxiety than to find someone quickly to whom he can hand over that gift of freedom with which the ill-fated creature is born. If psychological freedom entails the ability to envisage constructive ways to change our life and to then act upon these possibilities, why should we fear this? According to Dostoevsky, one of the main reasons for this is due to the intimate connection between freedom and anxiety. For anxiety follows freedom as its shadow. Our ability to project into the future and to imagine how things could be makes us aware of better ways of living. But we can never be certain if the pursuit of the possible will contribute more to our salvation or more to our suffering. We may be godlike in our ability to conceive of the possible, but we lack the omniscient power to know if we are correct in what we see and if we are capable of achieving what we desire. And so our inner God wants to pursue the possible, but our inner worm fears what will become of us if we do. This strange mixture of desire and dread that arises in the face of the possible creates an inner conflict which for Kierkegaard is the essence of anxiety. For as he put it, anxiety is a desire for what one dreads, a sympathetic antipathy. Anxiety is an alien power which lays hold of an individual, and yet one cannot tear oneself away, nor has a will to do so, for one fears, but what one fears one desires. Anxiety, then, makes the individual impotent. Or as Rollo May explained, anxiety is the state of man when he confronts his freedom. Whenever possibility is visualized by an individual, anxiety is potentially present in the same experience. Such possibilities, like roads ahead which cannot be known, since one has not yet traversed and experienced them, involve anxiety. To Kierkegaard, the more possibility an individual has, the more potential anxiety he has at the same time. To protect ourselves from the anxiety which accompanies psychological freedom, the 20th century psychologist Eric Fromm proposed that we enact behavioral strategies in order to flee from freedom. He called such strategies mechanisms of escape and argued that these mechanisms of escape are primarily motivated by masochistic strivings. In popular culture, masochism is typically associated with sexuality, but Sigmund Freud isolated a more prevalent form of masochism, which he termed moral masochism, in which the psychoanalyst Anita Weinreb defined as any behavioral act, verbalization, or fantasy that, by unconscious design, is physically or psychically injurious to oneself, self-defeating, humiliating or unduly self-sacrificing. On the surface, moral masochism appears puzzling. For how can a longing for submission, for humiliation and suffering, and for the belittlement of oneself, be felt as a worthy objective to strive for? But Fromm thought the riddle of moral masochism can be solved when viewed as an attempt to escape from the anxieties of freedom by submitting to a powerful other. Whether the masochist submits to an external god, a church, a nation, the state, a leader, an ideology, a company, a significant other, a drug, or an inner compulsion, the objective, according to Fromm, is always the same. The masochist cannot bear the anxieties of choice, of possibility and freedom, and so happily, he hands over the reins of his soul to a master. Or as Fromm wrote, The masochistic person, whether his master is an authority outside of himself, or whether he has internalized the master as conscience or a psychic compulsion, is saved from making decisions, 
saved from the final responsibility for the fate of his self, and thereby saved from the doubt of what decision to make. He is also saved from the doubt of what the meaning of his life is, or who he is. These questions are answered by the relationship to the power which he has attached himself. The meaning of his life and the identity of his self are determined by the greater whole into which the self has submerged. Moral masochism is ruinous to psychological health. The extreme dependency the masochist develops for a powerful other leads to infantilization and the enthusiastic acceptance of chains. The rejection of freedom does not leave a man unpunished, wrote the Russian dissident Viktor Gorsky. It turns him into a slave of necessity. Yet a masochistic flight from freedom also has wider social and political effects. For it is easy to find numerous examples of societies whose citizens feared freedom to such a degree that the only means of escape they saw was to submit to a powerful other in the form of an authoritarian regime. People grasp at political authoritarianism in the desperate need to be relieved of anxiety, wrote Rollo May in her book, The Quest of Our Lives. The author Ida Wiley notes a telling comment from a young German slightly before the horrors of World War II. We Germans are so happy. We are free from freedom. The negative social effects of moral masochism are not only seen in mass submission to an authoritarian regime. For a more covert mechanism of masochistic escape exists, and this involves submission to the tyranny of the majority, or what Fromm labeled as obedience to common sense, science, psychic health, normality, public opinion. The strategy behind this mechanism of escape involves identifying ourselves so thoroughly with whatever society deems self-evident, normal, and expected, that we are saved from having to formulate and commit ourselves to our own principles, values, beliefs, and ways of life. We repress our awareness of possibilities and accept only that which is socially given. This mechanism of escape may protect us from the anxieties of freedom, but the more we obey the tyranny of the majority, the more we lose ourself, and the more society becomes inhabited by automatons, who ostracize all who dare to deviate from the status quo. As Rollo May wrote, there is no political freedom that is not indissolubly bound up to the inner personal freedom of the individuals who make up that nation. No liberty of a nation of conformists. No free nation made up of robots. Given that moral masochism makes us weak and servile and promotes the enslavement of a society, we must ask, what can we do to develop the strength to bear the anxiety that freedom elicits and to move forward into life instead of remaining stagnant? How can we reignite the God within? Remembering that psychological freedom is the awareness of possibilities, plus the courage to move forward into the possible, Kierkegaard suggested that one way to become free is to recognize that when it comes to the decision of whether to pursue the possible, it is always better to take the risk and to venture into the unknown. Freedom lies in being bold, wrote the poet Robert Frost or as Kierkegaard echoed, By not venturing, it is so dreadfully easy to lose that which it would be difficult to lose in even the most venturesome venture. For if I have ventured amiss, very well, then life helps me by its punishment. But if I have not ventured at all, who then helps me? In choosing a life of venturing, in embracing the possible, even though this means inviting uncertainty into our life, we will not be tempted to resort to moral masochism. Rather, in venturing, we continually expand the confines of our comfort zone, we learn how to remain resilient in the face of failure, and we cultivate courage, self-reliance, independence, and hence self-respect. And so one question remains, 
Will we embrace our inner God and choose a life of courageous venturing, or will we succumb to our inner worm, flee from the anxieties of freedom, and seek out someone or something to call master? The first act of freedom is to choose it, wrote the psychologist William James, and the second is to take the actions that are necessary to be free and realize that life is short and the greatest suffering comes not to those who are bold, but to those who remain cowardly. The sea is dangerous and its storms terrible, but these obstacles have never been sufficient reason to remain ashore. Unlike the mediocre, intrepid spirits seek victory over those things that seem impossible. It is with an iron will that they embark on the most daring of all endeavors, to meet the shadowy future without fear and conquer the unknown. After spending years detained in Libya, these Cameroonian migrants have tasted freedom for the first time. But they still bear visible scars of the torture that many of them suffered, like Jean, who was struck with an iron bar by his captors. Look at my head. You'll see the scar. That's where they hit me with an iron rod. Having left Cameroon eight months ago with the dream of arriving in Europe via the Mediterranean, Jean came to be a victim of a well-organized human trafficking syndicate in Libya. He says he was sold four times and that slave traders bought him for between 400 and 500 euros. He took me and he went to sell me in another part of town. We were brought to Brat to work. We were slaves to a whole neighborhood. They didn't ask us whether we were hungry or thirsty. They didn't ask us anything. When we would remove weeds in peanut fields, we worked without getting up. Two people died right in front of me. The captors would hit someone, the person would cry out, and then they would die. These terrible living conditions convinced Jean and 249 other Cameroonian migrants to leave Libya. They returned to Yaoundé on Tuesday night by a special flight chartered by the government and the International Organization for Migration. After touching down, they are still haunted by the nightmare of having lost everything in Libya. This father's relieved to return to Cameroon with his family after having paid a $6,000 ransom. Other migrants have not been so lucky and are still being held hostage in detention centers. We have brothers who are still imprisoned over there. When they kidnap you, they beat you and torture you. If we hadn't given them money, they would have cut us up and left us in the desert. This migrant is one of more than 100 women who was captured pregnant. She was saved after her family paid a ransom. According to her, captors are more violent with the darker-skinned migrants. Black skin is a commodity in Libya. We're sold at cheap prices like chickens. I was sold and I was still pregnant at the time. I was sold for around 1 million CFA francs. If I'd given birth in prison, I would have been sold for 1.5 million. Hundreds of Cameroonians are still in Libya, and according to the UN, nearly 390,000 migrants from 40 different countries remain trapped there. You often hear the famous phrase, you learn something new every day, right? Well, what if I told you that your mind warps new ideas to fit with your older beliefs? Now, don't get me wrong. You are learning new things every day that help shape you as a person. Sometimes you feel confident in these new things you've learned. However, 
we can't avoid sometimes falling under the Dunning-Kruger effect, a cognitive bias. Not sure what this is? Well, the Dunning-Kruger effect is when people with very little knowledge on a topic tend to significantly overestimate themselves, while more intelligent people underestimate their knowledge. As an example, have you ever walked into a classroom the day of an exam with an unprecedented sense of confidence, despite not having studied a lot the night before? Or perhaps you were just the opposite. You studied all night long, but upon sitting down to take the test, suddenly you feel as if there were things you might have forgotten to review. Late-night talk show host Jimmy Kimmel's Lie Witness News segments further exemplify this. The segment consists of a crew asking random pedestrians questions that have false premises placed in. For example, asking people their opinion on a band that doesn't exist. The lengths to which some people go describing how much they love that band that doesn't really exist is breathtaking. That's just one example of the Dunning-Kruger effect set in motion. It makes sense if you think about it. No one wants to appear clueless about something they claim to enjoy in front of a camera. And the confidence we pull out to make us seem knowledgeable on something we know very little about can be very convincing, even to ourselves. It's easy for our brains to say, I understand this, based on the clutter of meaningless information stored in our head. The connections made in our mind sometimes even manage to fool ourselves into not recognizing our own ignorance. This meaningless information can often consist of misconceptions that we've gained over time. These misconceptions never really leave us, even if we know they're wrong. In fact, we can often bend or outright forget new information to make it fit with previous information. So, how do we recognize, and more importantly, avoid falling into the Dunning-Kruger effect? Well, we should all strive to educate ourselves as much as possible. After all, it isn't a bad thing to learn theories and ideas. Theory will only take you so far, though, and testing things in a controlled environment isn't always possible. This means you won't always be 100% prepared for situations you might think you learned how to deal with. And that's okay. You aren't expected to know everything after just learning the basics. In fact, you're encouraged to keep learning, to keep questioning, and to consider how your own thinking can be flawed or misguided. Coming to terms with the things we don't understand is the first step towards clearing up misunderstandings and learning new things. As Socrates said, true wisdom comes to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us. Thank you for watching, and don't forget to subscribe to Psych2Go. Somalia's Islamists are not only militant, they are also destructive. <laughs> So they started destroying the tombs, destroying uh, the shrines. Eventually, the Somali Sufis had enough. They started to fight back. Fifteen people were killed and ten injured on Monday in the central Somali town of Gakayo when Ashaba militants attacked a Sufi religious center. A police officer said, "Hello, Lamont Samuel Ivory. Thank you for viewing. Let's talk about the Somali Sufis. So, Al-Shabaab started out as a national group." It wasn't focused on 
any international uh, issues or conflicts, it was primarily focused on Somalia. Then at a certain point, the leadership of Al-Shabaab decided to ally itself with Al-Qaeda. They started getting influences from the Arabian Peninsula. And this, this, this influence uh, encouraged them to become even more hostile to the Somali Sufis. So they were already hostile to Sufism, but it became worse once they became aligned with Al-Qaeda. So they started doing what they do. You've, you've seen it around. Destroying uh, the tombs of uh, Sufi saints in Somalia, killing religious leaders, destroying Sufi communities, running amok, and under the influence of these non-Africans. Because normally, in most of Africa, the Islam that's, that's accepted, the traditional Islam of Africa, Malachi, Malachi Islam on the West Coast, is tolerant. So most of the versions of Islam in Africa, the African versions, are, are tolerant. So they started destroying the tombs, destroying uh, the shrines. Eventually, the Somali Sufis had enough. They started to fight back. They did not have any foreign assistance. They didn't have drone support from the West and all of that, or advisors. They just fought back. And they won. They were able to take back communities and push Al-Shabaab back. And now the national government, the national army, has accepted 5,000 of the Sufi fighters into the ranks with the hopes that the national army will learn what the Sufis did to defeat Al-Shabaab. And basically what they were doing or what they explained was basically, one, they had organic leadership. And two, they were self-sufficient. They didn't have drone support. They didn't have any outside powers instructed them in some sort of Vietnam-style counterinsurgency or anything like that. They had to come up with their own tactics. They had to find their own guns. They had to come up with their own intelligence. So they had to develop their own nationalistic approach to fighting these the, the enemy. And we don't know how that's going to turn out. Hopefully the Sufis will influence the national army and not the other way around. Because as you know, the national army and other uh, militias that had this Western-backed support haven't been the best fighters against Al-Shabaab. So we're hoping that they will influence. But what, but what is the lesson for Black America? Organic leadership and being self-sufficient. Organic leadership and being self-sufficient. Two things that we don't have. And it looks like Leading into this, this, this national election, 2020, we still don't get it. We still don't get it. 
we're still looking for outsiders to save us. We're having these versions of summits, Black Agenda tours, Black Agenda conventions, and, and people still don't seem to realize that. You have to look at inside yourself first. You have to look inside yourself first. So the first thing that the Sufis had, the Somali Sufis was organic leadership. Meaning the leadership was connected to the people so that they could give real time information and create real time strategies to fight the enemy. Do we have organic leadership? The institutional leadership of Black America is the Congressional Black Caucus. They haven't been organic for a very long time. They don't really have to depend on us that much for fundraising because they have a, a pack that is full of millions of dollars by some of the most predatory companies afflicting the black community. Cigarette companies, booze companies, lending companies, the, the basic mosquito-like companies afflicting us give donations to the CBC pack. The CBC pack is so renegade that they endorsed Hillary Clinton without the permission of the CBC. The CBC pack, the CBC Political Action Committee endorsed Hillary Clinton before the CBC gave its permission. That's how renegade they are. But they need it because they don't need to depend on the grassroots for fundraising. They depend on the democratic leadership for fundraising. So the first thing we need to do, if we're gonna follow the example of the Somali Sufis is first, we need some organic leadership. We have to clean house. We need to get rid of that group in the Congressional Black Caucus. They are simply not effective and they are too disconnected from us. They are too disconnected from us. And it doesn't matter who has a summit. It doesn't matter who has a black agenda tour or meeting or convention. If number one on that agenda is returning the CBC to black America, if that's not number one, I don't know what, what else is. You see, first things come first. If you're not willing to bring in that CBC and make sure that in fact it is a leadership for us, then why discuss it? Why even have a meeting? Why even have a meeting? Might as well just stay home and watch sports and watch Netflix. Because if you're not willing to go through the necessary actions, if you're not willing to, to harness the necessary energy to get a new group in that CBC, a group that is accountable to us, then there's no sense of discussing agenda at all. They are the institutional leaders. They have been disconnected from us for at least a generation. We need a group, a new group in, in office. They all, I mean almost to a man, they all need to go. And we can discuss other things. These new people, what will they look like? Of course, the ADOs people will say they have to be for reparations, etc. Now that's a conversation. But the first, the first thing is acknowledging that 
the CBC, the group that's in the CBC right now, needs to come home. They're not the group that will lead us to victory or just at least slow down our decline. And because right now we're declining at a very fast rate. The robots are advancing, killing our jobs, killing our salaries. That will increase. The robots will continue to advance and kill our salaries. At the same time, the black boomers are dying out and they're the only ones with wealth. So we're losing our wealth, we're losing our salaries and our jobs at the same time. And we have a leadership that is disconnected from us, that has been captured by the corporations and by the banks, and we need a new accountable group of people in the CBC. If we are the follow example of the Somalis, the Somali Sufis, we know we need a organic, connected leadership. The problems that we have cannot be solved with that group right now in Washington, D.C. So that's my, my, my opinion of all these summits and all these meetings and all these conventions. If we're not willing to do what's necessary, why have them? I know a lot of us, even a lot of the activists, we look forward, some of us, to going to the CBC galas and dressing up and looking fancy. But <laughs> And if you say that the CBC needs to go and we need a new CBC, of course, you never get invited to a gala. You never get to rent a tuxedo or anything like that. But that's what needs to be done. They have to go, all of them. They need to go, and we need a new group of people in the CBC. That's my video for today. I will have another one for you tomorrow. Thanks for watching. One day in 1995, a man robbed two Pittsburgh banks in broad daylight. He didn't wear a mask or any sort of disguise, and he smiled at surveillance cameras before walking out of each bank. Of course, the police found the robber and later that night arrested him. Interestingly enough, when the robber was handcuffed, he was puzzled and he mumbled, but I wore the juice. Apparently, this robber thought that smearing lemon juice on his face would render him invisible to bank security cameras. And he didn't just think that, he was pretty confident about it. His rationale was that since the chemical properties of lemon juice are used in invisible ink, it should render him invisible to the bank security cameras. This is obviously a completely dumb way of thinking. But what's interesting is that even after the police showed him the footage of his robbery, he was genuinely surprised that it didn't work, and he thought the footage was fake. The police concluded that this man was not crazy or on drugs, just incredibly misinformed and mistaken. The funny robbery led two social psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, to study this phenomenon more deeply. Specifically, what interested them the most was the confidence exerted by this robber that made him believe he'd be able to obstruct the security cameras with just lemon juice. To investigate this in the lab, they examined a group of undergraduate students in several categories. Their grammatical writing, logical reasoning, and a sense of humor. After knowing the test scores, 
they asked each student to estimate his or her overall score, as well as their relative rank compared to other students. This is when Dunning and Kruger found something fascinating. They found that the students who scored lowest in these cognitive tasks always overestimated how well they did. And not just by a little, but by a lot. They thought they scored above average, while their score was one of the lowest. So not only were those students incompetent or less skilled in those areas, but they obviously didn't even know just how bad they were at them. Students who scored the highest had more accurate perceptions of their abilities, but they made a different mistake. Paradoxically, the highest scoring students underestimated their performance. They knew they were better than average at the test, but because it was easy for them, they assumed it was easy for everyone. They didn't know that their ability was at the top percentile. Today, this phenomenon is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Essentially, low ability people do not possess the skills needed to recognize their own incompetence or lack of knowledge. Their poor self-awareness leads them to overestimate their own capabilities. You can clearly see what I mean in this graph here. Having barely any skill or knowledge leads to massive confidence. However, when you become more knowledgeable about a certain topic, that confidence falls. Only when you start to reach above average skill is when your confidence about a certain topic starts to pick up again. Contrary to popular belief, this is not just limited to cognitive tasks. It doesn't seem to matter what specific skill we pick. The less a person knows about any given activity, the more likely they are to overestimate their skill or knowledge. The Dunning-Kruger effect can be observed during talent shows like American Idol. The auditions are usually filled with variety of good and bad singers. The ones who are bad at it almost never realize how bad they really are. That's why they're genuinely disappointed when they get rejected. The truth is, we're not very good at evaluating ourselves accurately. In fact, the majority of people believe that they are better than average. 88% of people think that they are better drivers than the majority, and even elderly people rank themselves among the best drivers. A more interesting example is that 94% of professors assume that they are better in comparison to their colleagues. We judge ourselves as better than others to a degree that violates the laws of math. But why? Why does being less skilled make you more confident in your abilities? I'm going to help you visualize how this happens. This is Mike. He's an amateur photographer. And this box represents how much he knows about photography. And this is how big he thinks the field is and how much there is to know about it. With this reasoning, he's easily at the top percentile of all photographers. But let's say he meets a professional photographer, someone who has been doing it for seven years, but he still has a lot to learn. This photographer knows this much about photography. But he also knows that the field is much larger and there is this much to know about it. Because this photographer is more knowledgeable about the subject, he knows that this gray area exists. However, Mike does not. 
Now you can see why Mike is so confident in his ability. He has no idea just how much he doesn't know. Because he only has a little knowledge of the field, he doesn't know that it's way more extensive than that. And because he doesn't know what he doesn't know, he thinks he knows 90% about photography. Meanwhile, experts tend to be aware of just how knowledgeable they are. But they often make a different mistake. They assume that everyone else is knowledgeable as well, mostly because others exert so much confidence. In this instance, the photographer is aware he only knows about 70%. But if he met someone like Mike, he would underestimate himself. 90% is better than 70% after all. We are all susceptible to the Dunning-Kruger effect. But how can we prevent ourselves from falling prey to it? Well, the answer is, you should strive to educate yourself as much as possible. You're not expected to know everything after all. Thinking you're always right is a clear sign of foolishness. It seems that the more knowledge people have, the more they realize how little they know in reality. In other words, the more people know about a certain issue, the more they realize how complicated, unexplored and extensive it is and how many things they do not understand or know yet. It's a beautiful paradox in which the more we study something, the less we know about it. On the other hand, people who dabble on the surface of anything they pursue will never know how much they still have to learn. In the Dunning-Kruger experiment, unskilled or incompetent students improved their ability to correctly estimate the test results after receiving minimal tutoring on the skills they lacked. It's helpful to have someone who is ahead of you show you what you have yet to learn. So, next time you feel confident that you know a lot about something, take a closer look at the topic, as it could be that you are a victim of the Dunning-Kruger effect. You just might not know what you don't know. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed the video, hit the like button. And if you're not subscribed, make sure to subscribe. This way you won't miss out on more videos that will make you better than yesterday. Chino got it wrong? No. Oh my goodness. So one of you guys shot me the story from Sky News and in the story it goes on to say that there are hundreds, hundreds of children that are coming to the realization that, hmm, Maybe I'm not a Tyrannosaurus Rex after all. Maybe mutilating my body and taking hormones to change myself probably isn't the best solution. This now brings us to this 13-year-old little girl. This 13-year-old little girl is now going through the process of de-transitioning. Let me, let me rewind that for, for those of you who didn't get it all the way in the back. De-transitioning. Mm-hmm. Ruby began identifying as male at 13 years old. Now, 21, she'd been planning to have surgery to remove her breasts. But in May, she made the decision to come off testosterone and detransition to identify as female. Now, this 13-year-old girl talked to, to many therapists, right? And that's what they recommended to her. You know, the best way to cure the dysphoria you have is to go through the transitioning process, the transitioning process, right? That's, that's, that's what you hear all the time. Turns out that this little girl had an eating disorder. Now, hearing that, you, you would obviously think that, well, of course the therapist took that into account, right? Well, guess what? 
Guess how many therapists thought that, hmm, maybe her eating disorder about her body could possibly be overspilling into this dysphoria that she feels? Nope. No one. No one. None of the therapists that I spoke to um, brought that up. They didn't think that it was linked. You? I think so, yes. Because it, they're both kind of based in how I feel about my body. So I've seen similarities between the two. I want people to understand this, that the professionals she went to see, not one of them, not one of them had the bright idea that her eating disorder could possibly be impacting the way she feels about her body, that one could possibly causing the other. You tell me if that makes sense. You can't tell me that they're not manufacturing this problem. Mm -hmm. They are creating this problem. And I would argue, I mean, I would just follow the money trail. I would just follow the money trail. I wonder who gets kickbacks from these recommendations to this person or that person. Now, upon her mentioning that she now wants to detransition, guess how much support she got from the alphabet community? Mm-hmm. You guessed it. Zero. Zero. How much support did you feel was out there for you when you came to this conclusion? I didn't feel like there was any support out there other than like a few friends online. The story then leads us to another individual who went through the same exact thing. Now, this individual decides to start a charity where she comes across other 5,000 people who are going through the same exact thing. Charlie Evans is forming a charity to support people in Ruby's position. After going public with her detransition story, she discovered an online community of 5,000 in a similar position. I want people to really understand this, to really get a grasp of this. This video should have over millions of views. Should I have over millions of views? This video, this, this story should be put everywhere. Because if it was the opposite, if it was the other way around, you best believe Vice would be covering it, CNN would be covering it, MSNBC would be covering it, everyone would. So I don't know about for you, but for me, it seems that as soon as someone deviates from the narrative that the alphabet community has been throwing out there, has been propagating, it seems that those individuals are ostracized. Mm -hmm. It seems that they're, they're treated like lepers. Now, having said all that, for those of us with an intellectual bandwidth higher than that of a gnat, already guessed this. We already figured this out a long time ago. But you know what? It's 13-year-old children like this who are under the, 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 the parenting of these simpletons, who are under the parenting of people who have been indoctrinated themselves. Like I said, they no longer, they no longer care. Everybody wants to talk about they're trying to take the father of the household. No, they don't care about the father being in the household anymore because the father fathers uh, thinks the same way. So when the child says some ridiculous nonsense, hey, I feel like a, a T-Rex. Well, honey, well, let's go to the doctor. Let's see a diagnosis to see if you actually are a T-Rex. The doctor or the therapist says, you know what? This person's a T-Rex. Undergo surgery and hormone replacement. Okay, off you go. Maybe there are other factors that are causing this. Huh, maybe there's another way to handle this instead of mutilating your body. In which case, it's, it's irreversible in many times, depending on when you started. This is sickening. And we've already had people who come out and spoken about this. People, yeah, well, I already told you. Uh, uh, what's his name? Walter Heyer. We are manufacturing transgender kids. We are manufacturing their depression, 
their anxiety, and it's turned into a huge industry that people are profiting from after kids' lives are completely torn apart. Yeah, the f***ing Walter Heyer. We are manufacturing transgender kids. We are manufacturing their depression, their anxiety, and it's turned into a huge industry that people are profiting from after kids' lives are completely torn apart. Yeah, the first non-binary person who's come out and spoken about this. But, you know, those stories are suppressed. Those stories are suppressed. The G-Mafia, they don't like those individuals. I just want people to understand the nonsense that's going on. Now, in the video, of course, even in the video itself, they go on to show this 21-year-old who has uh, a girl who now thinks, how do I say this, that they're not, they're not a girl. We'll, say, we'll put it like that. And they're saying, oh, I feel so amazing. That is, it, was, it was horrible. It was torture. Okay. Okay. Well, let's give it some time. Let's give it some time. Anyways, guys, that's the video. Let me know what you guys think. We're not able to look at this Yeah, or it sounds sometimes old. You're disgusting. Or if you have believe, I don't know. Maybe one plus one isn't 506 after all. Hmm. Either or, I hope you guys enjoyed the video. If you did, please feel free to like, share, comment, subscribe. Oh, that fun stuff. Till next time, guys. Be amazing. Sorry about all of the technical difficulties tonight. Uh, quite a bit of very, very active tonight. Uh, greetings, Roz. How you doing this evening? Hey, I'm glad to be on the, on the, on the air with everybody. Um, man. Again, excuse the tech difficulties, quite unexpected, but, you know, when you do the types of things that we do, it is expected at the same time. Um, still learning, still learning. I know you're still learning, too, but how's everything on your end? Man, it's it's constant. <laughs> it's, it's moving fast, moving fast. But um, we took an extremely large amount of our time uh with the video clips tonight so let's get right on into it first off uh welcome to uh real life the radio show i am your host jenna kepra alongside my co-host brother rise uh for those of you that have questions or comments <clears throat> i guess we'll get straight to those this evening so we don't have y'all up t- uh, too late tonight so if you have a question or comment of course by all means, give us a call. That number is 719-284-5271. That number again is 719-284-5271. And the pin to get in is 70637. 70637. And press uh, star, star, or is it, what you say, Rob, star 61? Star 61. One to open your mic up. Uh, just to get started, uh, first clip is one of the. It's not the most important to me out of all of the clips that we played tonight, but it is right up there. So I will start with it. The uh, the cookware. Uh, a lot of yes. us have no idea about this cookware and uh, all of the different elements that we tend to ingest just by way of the cookware. And there was a few good things, so I'm going to hit on the uh, more positive. Uh, the 100% ceramic cookware. Um, I knew about the dangers of ceramic, but 
I was very surprised tonight, and I will be doing a little bit more uh, research on that, but I was very su- surprised to find out that there was a lot of different chemicals in the said natural, because that's what it tells you on the, uh, on the packaging, although we done done uh, different shows about how the government done changed the laws to be able to recreate what things mean. But the 100% ceramic cookware, I had never heard of. I thought the regular ceramic cookware was 100%. So that was a great surprise to myself. Uh, the copper cookware, I know that copper is good for us and uh, in when you ingest it a certain way. Uh, whether and in we, small doses. Say again? No, I said and in small doses. You don't need tons of it. So, yeah. But, yeah, it's good for you, but in small doses. Remember that uh, black people's melanin is copper based. So that is one of the good reasons for um, black black people ingesting copper, but it should be in the form of colloidal copper. And it should, it, it's usually in small doses. You'll usually take like a tablespoon if you're an adult, you know, um, for maintenance. And um, yeah, because it can, it can be toxic if taken in too high of a dose or in, like they explained in the cookware um, situation. And funny you mentioned, just before you continue real quick, mentioned the ceramic because I grew up, my mom, when I was in Brooklyn, she um she had something known as corning wear, which was a hundred percent pure ceramic and they used to have glass tops. So funny enough, I, and it was very expensive, just like the guy said. So she only had to buy them once, but they literally lasted a lifetime and that's something she would make like baked macaroni pie in and things like that. And anything dealing with the oven and sometimes if she was doing stews or soups. She would actually use the um the the cornerware, which was ceramic. So I'm definitely familiar with, and I'm glad he talked about that. But continue. Yeah, I want to toss that out. That there. was awesome. Uh, I'm gonna have to go into my cupboard and uh, and just readjust some things just off of that one video alone. After I finished uh, doing my little research on it, uh, another like I was stating the dangers of the copper uh, cookware, and I know a lot of us who don't use copper have seen those cracks and what have you in the copper. And I didn't know that, you know, it was releasing all of these different chemicals based off of that nickel coating. So it's, it was, it was really mind blowing just to hear that. Uh, Karen I was very uh, aware of that. That was something that I grew up on uh, with my mother, whether we talking about frying chicken, whether we talking about, uh, oxtails because my mother had a large like 50 gallon uh a 50 gallon size yep my mom too and she would make oxtails too (laughs) yeah it was basically a bucket of cast iron you know i mean even some um some of my cousins and stuff you know would even get bathed in that big thing so and just to know that absorbing that iron i you could feel a difference when you eating from a cast iron skillet versus uh, some other type of uh, skillet. And I guess it's that iron that you mm-hmm. ingest in. So, you know, just as, as I grow older and, and I start to make sense of some of the things that I've experienced, although it's enlightening to me, I find that like I knew these things, I just didn't know why it was happening. So, you know, this just kind of put a couple pieces to the puzzle together. Uh, forgive the metaphor um just a quick rundown because there was a uh i don't i don't cut it off my screen now but this saying from uh brother comma we we all can't be sunshine every day 
that made so much sense to me because yeah, I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to just here on this show. I, I know that we share a lot of information, and what I find is that it circulates so much to where I would find that something that we talked about a year ago has become the trend on different social media sites. And you could tell that the people who's sharing it don't really know what they're sharing. They just like that part. And so, you know, I'm not saying that they got it from us, but it is great to see that other people are starting to catch on. And I think that's a good, uh, that's a good uh, way to visualize that we can all be the sun every day uh, because that, that little bits of information kind of shines on other people and they tend to share that because it helped them in some sort of way. So that was, that was awesome. Um, another one of the things that I wanted to get into is that uh, the more the anxiety talking about uh, freedom and anxiety, the more possibility one has, the more ex- anxiety that they have themselves. Hold, hold, hold that thought real quick before you move on, because I, I was going to actually touch on the ones you were touching on. So rather than me going over the same thing, uh, go ahead. Um, I was going to say with the, 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 the cookware. So just to just to reiterate the different options he had, let me just scroll up because I took notes. So he said um, the best ones to use are cast iron, glass, uh, cast iron, uh, glassware, steel, stainless steel that is food grade and 100% ceramic cookware. Now, to avoid dealing with the issues of um, using aluminum for cooking in the oven, one thing you can do is use parchment paper. Parchment paper, you can use it for baking cookies. You can use it to line a dish if you're making something, and pretty much it doesn't catch fire in the oven. So you can use it to cook. Um, And like they said, it is safer if you're going to use aluminum to use it on cool food. Also, he talked about, uh, I think he talked about a, a, a coated, uh, cast iron pots with that yeah, are nonstick nickel coated. Yeah. Nickel coated that, that are nonstick that, that are safe to use. Another thing you can do is take a regular cast iron pot and do what is known as seasoning the cast iron pot or the cast iron pan. And how you do that is pretty much you take a layer of, um, of cooking oil. I like to use like peanut butter oil or sunflower oil because it has a high burn point and you put a thin coating of that on the entire cast hey, iron pot quick. to handle everything. Go ahead. Before you go, I mean, before you go too deep into it, just, uh, Mind you, for all of the people who are allergic, just make sure that you're not using an oil that that you are allergic to, because very it true up in your system. And I know that sounds so simple, but yet it happens all the time. Uh, go ahead, Rob. Very true. Thanks for that for that addition. And uh, what you do is you put a thin uh, layer, a thin coating of oil on the entire cast iron pot to handle everything. You turn your oven up to 300 degrees, and then you put it in there for about 15 minutes. What happens is that oil becomes a nonstick layer. And what you, you're able to – usually I've used it maybe uh, two to possibly five times before I needed to re-season it, but pretty much you just periodically season it, and eventually that coating will start to, um, to build some layers, and you get like a buffer zone with it. And you don't like you and actually you don't need to use like a, a metal scrub or anything because that'll remove the seasoning that you put on it and that'll create a nonstick layer. So I just wanted to toss that out there about that uh, real quick before you, you know, you move forward. And um, there was something else you talked about, I think, too, didn't you? Oh, you talked about Kaba Kamina and the, um, 
Yeah, he talked about the um the sun and moon proverb and that the, the, the moon doesn't create its own light, it gets shined on. So in other words, when just in meta, metaphysically speaking, when you share information. So the person who's sharing the information you never knew would be pretty much the sun. You, by sharing it with other people, become the moon. So that knowledge you gain from someone else is reflecting off of you and affecting the lives of other people. And again, like he said, down the road, that person that you gave information to might become the sun and share something with you. And then you become the moon and you spread that information. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that, that was just a powerful um, African proverb to kind of give a good insight because everything about African languages are proverbial. That's why you find proverbs in, in American African speech. You find proverbs, and it's very proverb-laced in, in the Caribbean islands and, and um, in South America and um, the places that black people, heavily melanated people, are located that are directly connected to the continent. And when you go to the continent, I don't care what part of the continent you go to, it's the same thing. They speak in proverbs, and that's in order to convey deep meanings with a seemingly simple story or a seemingly simple phrase. And I thought that that was just a powerful way of of expressing how we should interact with each other. That should always be our focus to try and do something constructive and provide something constructive for someone else and also be ready to receive something constructive from someone else. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit further as we get into the Dunning-Kruger effect down the road. But yeah, continue with where you left off, and then I'll just chime in on, on, on what you talk about once you're done. Well, I just I just uh, took a few quick notes, and uh, okay. we actually have a caller, so we're going we gonna to come to you. It looked like my man Cujo, so we'll get to you here in a second, Cujo. But, uh, you know, I thought another one, because it was a lot of – there was a lot of good points made in that uh in that freedom versus anxiety joint and uh oh yeah the inner god versus the inner worm yes powerful go ahead i'm calling it i'm calling it incorrect thank you i appreciate that no problem so the other ones that i that that really hit me real deep and i'm gonna pull this up because there's a few of them that i want to go over but uh sure while you're getting into your points i want to uh bring this up okay uh, um saving oh, you want me to go oh you oh, you go first i'm sorry I mentioned this one thing and, it, and oh, what stated was that uh saving you from making decisions accepting slavery to save you from making decisions now this is a uh this goes directly with the uh dunning kruger effect which is a yep. uh, topic of tonight uh the biggest problem in black america and that is we allow people to give us information and we pass it along, pass it along without vetting it. And a lot of times that information tends to be misleading, but by the time it's made its way back around to you, it's a big mess to clean up. Whether, whether you have time to straighten it out with that particular person, you still have hundreds and with the internet, sometimes thousands, maybe millions of people, who are repeating that same lie and it's almost impossible to create uh not to create but to correct just like uh brother Kaba said that when you have a such a fantastical lie the truth just is is non-believable absolutely absolutely and it's, it's interesting because i wrote quite a bit on that I just want to give an example of something like that that I experienced on Black Junction months ago. There was a, a post on there. She happened to be female, and she put up a picture. And in the picture, she wrote, 
this is the aboriginals in america fighting the british and she put some weird year 18 or 17 something some craziness like that and i'm looking at the picture because i i study this type of stuff so zulu history i'm very familiar with and that picture i've seen before and i'm like that has nothing to do with any aboriginals the shields that they were holding were south african shields the spears that they were holding were um South African spears, the, the short um, battle spears that Shaka created, I think it's called the uh, Asaga, if I remember correctly, was the name he called it. And I said, that's incorrect information. It was a meme, and this is what she put on the meme. These are aboriginals fighting the British, da-da-da-da-da. And then I went and I actually dug up the original picture, which was a National Geographic photograph that they had put out back in like the 90s or the late 80s. And it was part of an exhibit that they had when they were explaining the Battle of Islamwana in South Africa. So I actually posted the original, back to the original photograph with the National Geographic information. And I, I didn't even bother speaking to the sister because we had had conversations before and she has a habit of, of just um, pretty much uh, flooding Black Junction with a bunch of memes, with a bunch of misinformation. Some of the information she, she does put up is accurate, but there's quite a bit of it that's nonsensical and confusing because she really doesn't know what she's doing, but she thinks she does. So when I tried to correct her in the past, you know, nice. I wasn't rude about it. I was just, you know, very um, accommodating and respectful, but she was so nasty. I just said, I understood that she she had the Dunning-Kruger effect going on. And I said, I'm not wasting, I always say this, I don't have time to deal with crazy. So instead of me even conversing with her, I just actually posted the original picture. I put the details of the original picture, and I said, don't let people fool you with a picture with some words on it. Because the, even the government said one of the greatest propagators of misinformation are memes, because people believe because somebody puts a photograph with a bunch of words on it that everything about what they're, put, what they're looking at is authentic. And if you don't know history, you've never studied history, or if you've studied history, but you really don't have any sort of methodology and really don't know authentic um, uh, firsthand sources or, you know, verified sources to actually get your information, you'll be getting misinformation left and right. And I just put the real information up there and I left it at that. But that was a great example of that. And um, when you were talking about, uh, is it the Kaba, Kaba, Kaba? Where is it? Um, I'm trying to pull up what I what I wrote on them real quick. Well, which which one are you speaking of? Are we talking about the uh, slavery in New York City? Are we talking about no. uh, imagination? No, no, we we dealt with imagination already. Um, what was what was the what led to this conversation? Wasn't it a Kaba clip or a part of a clip that that uh, you dealt with? That this was freedom and anxiety. Oh, uh, freedom and anxiety. Okay, so yeah, when it comes to the freedom and anxiety, right? I believe that most people don't know what freedom is, and the reason why is because we've been just on a societal level pigeonholed by the the beat the hive mentality to see everything in collective ways. So even when there's misinformation, like Kaba said, it's, the truth is so hard to believe that like the Dunn and the Kruger effect said, you'll actually take the truth and discard it or you'll doctor it so it fits the narrative you already have. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people actually believe that Googling something is gonna automatically pull up accurate information when you combine the cookies and the algorithms, it is basically tuned to your personality. So if you're already getting misinformation, anything you type into Google is going to give you more misinformation to confirm the, the original misinformation that you were looking for. Because that's so what a lot of people. Exactly. So like when 
I use Google. I don't use Google the way everybody else does. I don't just look for the first thing that pops up. I know that it's tailor-made to my personality. So I'll ask questions in different ways to get different sets of information. I'll go into 100 pages in to look for information sometimes, go from one all the way up to 100 pages because the information that I need as far as stuff that doesn't, isn't tailored to my personality is that far into a search. See, these are all things that the average person doesn't do. And I come from a, back, from a background before the Internet. It was my generation that first started using computers. I remember it quite vividly. And um, there were the old clunky big Commodore 64s and the Commodore computers and the big lumpy um, AS400 systems and all of that stuff, which I'm still familiar with to this day. And the crazy part about it is back then you had to actually research and go to the library and take out books and actually study real stuff and go through bibliographies and get books from the bibliographies. And I'm sitting at the feet of Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark and all these other people who are further enhancing my methodology and my ability to actually study and research. So that so I know how to do it and I do it all the time. So and I also don't believe I know everything. I'm always open and ready and willing to learn something new. So that's a major difference in the mindset that it takes to actually thwart the Dunning Kruger effect. And what I think it is is that most of us don't know what freedom is. And like they said in the in the video, it's easier to go it's better it's better to go into the unknown than rather not experience at all. And what that is saying is ultimately the unknown is freedom. Slavery is following what everybody else is doing because that's what you're comfortable with and that's what you're used to. And the vast majority of people go into slavery. Very few people say, I want to go into the unknown. And it really is weird, weird enough because it ties into the creator. In the Metroneta, they go into a discussion about why the world was created, why human beings and animals exist. What is that for? And the comedic people said themselves, the creator said the reason for creating the world was in order for itself to have experience. It knew that it was omnipresent, omnipotent, and, 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 and um, um, omnipotent, omnipresent, and there's another one. It's slipping my mind right now. It'll probably come to me later. And what happened was in order for it to fully experience those abilities that it possessed, it needed to create the world that we live in, known as the phenomenal plane. So the phenomenal plane is where physical things exist. The nominal plane is the world of the unseen before things come into the world of the seen. So it's just like an idea. If you have a chair, at one point there was no such thing as a chair. Somebody got that idea from the world of the unseen and decided to make that object in the world of the seen. And we all know it as a chair. Stop you there for a second. Yes. Wouldn't that go hand in hand directly with uh, Brother Kama talking about the imagination and just yes. Having, uh, okay. Yes, it does. And and the thing about it is this. Um, so in order for it to experience itself as deity, it had to make itself into a myriad of animate and inanimate objects. And in this particular world that we live in, we are the highest expression of the animate beings, humans. But you have other high, high, high forms of life, too. Elephants are a very high form of life. Trees are a very high form of life. Uh, dolphins are also a very high form of life. So you have other ones, but we are the highest expression of that existence. And because of the, the richness of our create, connection to the creator and by the design of the creator, his, her creation, us being a reflection of that, we don't have the, 
the, the, the tools of predators. We don't have claws. We don't have fangs. We don't have anything like that. Everything that we've done comes from our ability to serve the intellect or have the intellect serve us and control the animal instinct. Because humans are animals. People just don't understand that. We're, we're no, no different than any other animal. We're just the highest expression of what that is in the physical. But when you get to the spiritual, we're much more than that. And it takes spiritual cultivation to be able to, to do that, to experience that, know, and intimately understand that. And that's the unknown. That's what our ancestors delved into all the time. When you go anywhere along the Nile Valley, from Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Kenya, all the way up to Ethiopia, and you follow the blue and the white Nile coming all the way down to uh, Khartoum and Sudan, and then from there all the way up to Cairo in the Delta. And a lot of people don't also know that there was something known as the Yellow Nile, which flowed from west to east. So there was a highway directly connecting Nile Valley, Egypt, to West Africa. And some of our ancestors used that waterway to flee when, when Egypt was invaded by the Cambyses and other groups. And they ended up in West Africa fleeing the tyranny that was taking place in Sudan and Egypt. And the Yellow Nile is now dried up. There's only like a small wadi left, and there's a, a specific crocodile that lives in that wadi, and it's on its way to extinction. There's very few, I think like less than 20 of them left now. And it's a unique crocodile that only lives on the Yellow Nile. And that's, but that whole stretch of that river is dried up, but the, the riverbed is there where you can find, follow it from satellite with the proper technology. So, um, yeah, it, the, the, I want, the deity itself, like the video said, had anxiety about not being able to experience. So it spoke the world through vibration into existence, just like the quote-unquote Bible says, but in Kemet, it was Ta who spoke the world into existence. It was the deity's own anxiety about not, in its, in its dormant state, in, in what they call noon, the primordial water, the deity was there. It just didn't, it was formless. It didn't have a body. It didn't have anything with which to experience. So the anxiety behind that, wanting to experience its fullness as a deity, as the deity, it created the phenomenal plane, the world that we live in. And we are the highest expression of that on this planet. Well, let and me, these are the, go ahead. No, nah, I was going to say, I want to, uh, because my man, my man Cujo, he been waiting. I just wanted to get this. Oh, yeah, up. let's get him in there. Go ahead. To add to what you were saying, though, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, we're going to have to share this on Black Junction, Black Talk Radio. Uh, I may even put this video in our actual, uh, I might even just put this YouTube up on our actual uh, thread where I made the, uh, well, you will be able to download the the playback because this has a lot of things that, that we deal with, with day to day. And I, I want to read this before I get this to uh, Cujo. Sure. Anxiety is the state of man. When he confronts his freedom, whenever whenever possibility is visualized by an in- individual, anxiety is potentially present in the same experience. Experience Such possibilities like roads ahead, which cannot be known since no one has yet transversed and experienced them, involve anxiety. These are the same exact things, even down to the most simple, simplest level. So when you're talking to your children and you ask them, what do they want to eat? This is, this is, uh, that's the most simplest way I could, I could put it. And what do your children normally tell you? 
I don't know. I don't care whatever you whatever you like, dad or mom, whoever is the person. That's and you can have that same question, uh, take out the food and add anything. One of your friends, we tend to always go with the majority. And another set of anxiety always comes when you know that's wrong, but you decide not to say nothing because you don't want to go against the group. Brother Cujo, how you doing this evening? One love, one love, my brother. Peace, what's going on, y'all? Good to hear from y'all, man. Uh, I'm still still learning, man. That's what this whole entire show sounds like, man. Just (laughs) a belly full of quotes to the fullest. Keep learning. Keep learning. I um I gotta ask one of the questions I have for for you brothers and and by the way, um then I wanted to mention something. You really sparked a a thought in my mind. Uh, It was a while back when you mentioned something about like even though you sometimes are around people that are not quite as on point as you may be, you still keep them around for other reasons, uh, you know, and, um, and, I I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and real talk, like I'm really understanding that dynamic more and more as I've just fall back. And when I say this, I mean, this completely when I fall back and just shut up and just listen to people talk. Like it just gives me so much leeway and I understand that dynamic now more because I could see how they'll still say things here and there that are a little bit off, but every once in a while they interject something that'll let me know about them and let me know about the people around them that may affect me. You know, so it's just one of those things that, that is, that's been happening recently and I was like, oh yeah, we spoke about this. <laughs> and the, the <laughs> word up. And the other thing is, um, in regards to knowing and knowing that you don't know. Now, the flip to me is that to realize you're where you are, like let's say you're gauging yourself, and you can't properly gauge yourself because you don't know how much other people don't know, but you know you know and you don't know. And I'm, I hope you follow me. Yes. Would, it be wise to, would it be wise to have people around you that that have a good perception of you to actually give you uh, the right insight to where you are to a certain degree. Meaningly have the right influencing people around you to guide you and say, hey, 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 you're not down here. You're up here or you're over there. You understand what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you guys agree with that? Do you guys yeah. agree with that? Or do you it have depends. a different perspective on where that? It depends on which which answer you want first. Do you want the long drawn out answer first, and we'll let Roz handle that. If if whatever you time, whatever, no matter how much, it doesn't matter to me. Both is fine. I, I, I to me, you know, I got I got time. <laughs> okay, well I I'll go first because you know mine's gonna be a little bit short and to the point. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna give you the most the simplest uh, explanation possible, and as much as this harms me to say this uh it depends because everybody that you're around everybody that knows you doesn't care for you so so and what i mean is is that you could be in your learning stage and you could have been grew up with somebody even as close as your brother or your mother and as you develop because they didn't know this and they feel ashamed because they had an idea that they was passing down information to you, 
they would uh they would try to discredit you and if you're just in the beginning stages of this understanding then you'll start uh you'll believe that because these people have always been a uh a source for you now on the other hand uh more times than not you could find that uh that openness from a stranger uh sadly to say because they they don't care whether you like it or not they just want to let you know that yo like you on the right page you just spark something within me or they'll just stop you and pull your coattail and be like yo you know that was some bs right like, I ain't want to say it in front of everybody, but like, you totally wrong and then give you the answer, you know? So it, it depends. You have to, it goes back to that when, when you mentioned about us talking about the uh, three different people, uh, shout out the, uh, brother Dave Wren, because he yes, gave me that example. Uh, what it does is that, uh, you have somebody that you can always trust and that no matter what's going on, they're going to give you the, the absolute correct answer to whatever situation you're in you're going to have that person that's absolutely going to give you the wrong answer every time and you have that person that's in between that can uh that you know they on their learning journey as well and sometimes uh you're one of those three people so you have to be mindful of the people that you keep company with and you also have to be mindful of where you stand within that group of people Now, wow. I hope that answered your question, uh, at least to the best of my abilities. Oh, definitely, man. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I'm, again, I'm still learning, and that's why I asked the question, because I wanted to understand the, the dynamic from somebody else who's dealing with it as well, because, you know, in my working environment, I can see so much going on now mm-hmm. that I've fallen back. Like once I take a step back and it's hard for me being a young black male in a corporate office to not be, to not have eyes on me. Right. So what right. I've done, what I've, what I've done is taking that onus and saying, all right, I'm going to have eyes on me, but it doesn't mean I have to be the the showcase. Like I, I'm, I'm not up at the show. It's not my dance, you know, <laughs> and yeah, I'm sure. not going to work it like that. I'm going to let them do the dancing and I'm just, I'm a, I'm going to frame the picture. Even yeah. though I'm in this, I'm in I'm in their cave. I'm gonna I'm gonna frame the picture and make sure that I get the best out of this that I can. You know that's that's where I, most of this is basically coming from, and as well as friends, friends and family. I mean, I, there's no getting around that. No getting around that. I understand. I was, Man, go ahead, Ross. I was, I was using American African proverb. I grew up hearing a long time. You have one mouth and two ears because listening is way more important than talking. And you're absolutely right. When you become observant and you just sit back and just observe and just, just pay attention to everything that's going, going on around you, pay attention to what's being said if you're in earshot of anything, and just take in the scenery, especially when you're dealing with um, jobs and you're interacting with colonizers and even other black people, it'll give you an understanding of their psychomachinations and what drives them. If you just listen to their regular everyday conversations, you can find out a lot about people. Um, so I totally understand where you're coming from, and um, that's the purpose of actually doing as much paying attention as possible when you're in that element, because at that point, you're using the double consciousness, as um, W.E.B. Du Bois would talk about. You know, you have a way that you are when you're at home with your family, and you can cut loose and be yourself or with your friends when you hang in and stuff. You're your complete self. When you're in an arena with the colonizer, especially at work, which is the most acutely intimate 
setting and you're spending the vast majority of your week of your life in that environment, then you develop a, a different consciousness where you where you code switch instead of speaking, um, you know, I would say American African English. I don't believe in slang. It's American African English versus when you're on the job, you're going to speak what I call standard English because there's no such thing as um, um, uh, English. I, as, as American English, because American English is like the, the the bastard of regular English. So, you, you know, we were taught by pretty much prisoners. So the English that we speak in America is prisoner's English. Um, so the whole thing in a nutshell is you speak their English on their job, and when you're at home, you're yourself. So that is the best way to take in what's going on and actually better protect yourself as far as codifying around, making sure that you're never involved in any nonsense on the job. Now, I would say this. Um, when it comes to people who might take you to be the smart person out of the three, the one that they can always depend on, um, I've been in that position for quite a few people that I know, and some of them have been in that position for me as well. But the way that you gauge that, I, for me, this is just my thing. People might have their own understanding of it, which is fine. This is just Ross's approach to this. I pay attention to people's character before I pay attention to their intelligence. Mm. The reason why is this, because if a person is what we call in Yoruba, the Yoruba language, Iwapele, if a person has good character, which is what Iwapele means, it means good character, then you know that if that person is the person who's your senior in intelligence, that if they care for you as well, which good character would imply they care for you, they're going to give you the best of everything they have to offer every time, and especially if you're in crisis. If the person who's also seeking like you has good character, then whatever they know about, they're going to speak on. Whatever they don't know about, they're not going to speak on. Or they'll say, you know what, I'll research that and get back to you, which lets me know that they're willing to say to me, I don't know. And that I hold in the highest regard over somebody who knows or thinks they know everything. And for the person who is the less intelligent one, it gives me insight into the people who might have the opposite opinion on reality than I do. And it's based on their lack of information. So when I go to research the opposing side of whatever it is that I'm studying, sometimes I'll bounce it off of them. Man. Because it, cause they'll be able to let me know the other person that's coming at me can't really have the real information and say the stuff they're saying. So let me put myself in the shoes of the person who would be on the other side of a quote-unquote debate. And like Dr. Clark used to tell us since I was a child, I only debate with my equals. So there's very few people I've ever had a debate with. But the bottom line is, with you to get into a discussion about that, they would let me know that the per person who might be more ignorant than me, especially if they're belligerent about it, because usually, like they said, the most ignorant people are the most confident. They're usually the first ones to go to insulting and all of that stuff because they really don't know. So... I will use them to show me what I would have to contend with if I did get into a debate with someone else who actually, if they had the correct information and processed it properly, they would not have come to the conclusion they've come to. So that's, that's the way I would deal with that as, as far as that's concerned. I see. Do you want to I chime see. in, Jenna? Well, I, I was just, I need a flex bomb. That's what I do. But go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask, like, one of the things. Well, say actually, one of the things I noticed in my observation is the people that tend to be the most dangerous to me are the people that don't know that think they know. Like know-it-alls mm -hmm. are the most scariest people to me. Like I went out and I run into so many know-it-alls, 
And when I start falling back and listening to the, the, the things that they say, it worries me because I think to myself, this person is vocal and at the same time thinks they know and they're giving out hordes of bad information. Just like the, the sister you spoke about, she didn't give, you said she didn't give out all bad info. But what I'm saying is I've run into that scenario where I've just have had to just sit back and go, man, like you're giving out information. Like I, I, I know where you're coming from because I was where you were. I'm in this space right now. And I know that what you're talking isn't right. You know what I'm saying? And I tend to kind it's of, funny. those people, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry for interjecting. I was going to say, it's funny you said that because um, there was a brother, his his um, name was Mellow Black. He was a rapper. This is when I was producing the rhyming. His name was Mellow Black and his moniker was the ignorant know-it-all. And I adopted that from him. Um, he actually did a, there was a group called the Bush Babies. I went to high school with one of them. Um, and I ended up like hanging with them on at least two of their video shoots and whatnot back in the, um, in the early 90s. And I met Mellow. Yo, I think they, I think they went to Brooklyn. I think they went to Brooklyn Tech, if I remember correctly, man. I'm not, I think so. Yeah, I know who you're yeah, talking I, about. I know they can't. Yeah, Ka- yeah. The leader, Khalil, is is my man. We went to um City Ave together after I transferred out of aviation, and they introduced oh, okay. me to. I met the other two there. We were freestyling stuff there, and Makai Pfeiffer was there, and all of that. But anyway, I met Mellow. His, his moniker was the ignorant know-it-all, which ties into what you just said. He's ignorant, but he thinks he's a know-it-all at the same time. And and like I said, I took that from him. And you're going to find a lot of people like that, and especially in today's day and age, because everybody thinks that Google is a viable resource to find about find out about any and everything, which it could be if you know how to use it. The 99% of the people who are on the Internet do not know how to properly use it. There's very few people. That's my opinion. I'm not saying that's statistically accurate. It could be 5%. But in my opinion, the overwhelming majority of people do not know how to use Google or search engines in the optimal way to get to viable factual information that they can use. Most of it is based on confirmation bias. They already have a, a bias about the information that they, something they think they know, the ignorant know-it-all, and then they look up stuff that confirms their ignorant ideas. And they'll, they'll stack up all that information and then tidal wave somebody who comes at them from the, from the opposite angle, even with viable proof. The Dunning-Kruger effect. They ignored all the viable proof to go back to what they believe is correct. And that's the term I use for them, ignorant know-it-alls. Um, you know, when you're dealing with, with personality types where, like, you'll bring up a subject and you might have a person that you know, and everything you're talking about, the other person has the same exact experience. Mr. Me Too, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of all of that in the world today. So we have to watch for those things more than ever. That's why I always say I look for character first before intelligence, because even if they're less intelligent, but they have good character, then I know that they're striving to become more intelligent, which means they're reachable and they're teachable if they're trying to learn about something that I know about that I can pass on that now soon, you know, or, or assist them in some way along their journey. And also if there's something they know that I don't know, then I know because they have good character that what they do know about, I can trust what they're telling me and then actually get further information to further solidify my understanding as to why they have a position or understanding on the subject that they do. And then once it coincides, then I'm like, okay, cool. But the character comes first because that sets the trajectory for the quality of any relationship. A person with bad character is going to be full of bad information. Mm. That's just a, that's a mm. given. That is a straight given. Right. A person with right. good character 
might have bad information, but is malleable and open to constructive criticism and teaching. That's mm-hmm. where the good character comes into play. A bad character person will hold on to those, those negative, those incorrect beliefs and try to convert you. And that's the difference. So always go for character first because the character is what will facilitate what we call in comedic spirituality, makaru, being true of voice. And true of voice meaning that you're a person who speaks truth and strives to speak and teach truth at every, any and every given opportunity. So you never deviate from the truth, even if it's unpleasant. So that, that was my thing on that. I hope um, I gave you some, some insight on that. But go ahead, if you have any other questions. Not, not you know. a, yeah, I actually do for both of you, both of you brothers again. So I hope I'm not taking up too much of your time. Um, but the other thing so I, I was, I, I'm looking into, and this is more, more related to you know, my personal life, is, and I, I believe everybody can relate to it, is na- navigating towards getting to that space where you, you venture out into that, that nothingness. And from what I'm understanding, at least for me, from what I'm mm-hmm. understanding is the more informed I am and the more I have people around me that are supportive of me stepping out into the unknown, the more courage I'll have in doing that. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, so, so instead of being it's, on the plantation for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. instead of being on the plantation for the rest of my life, I'll be able to navigate and make a move that will be more, you know, self-sufficient. And even if I end up doing something like that, I'd still be able to manifest something else on the side that would allow me to leave at least earlier. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. I, I look at what I see when I look at my coworkers and all these other people in my office. I've come to the realization by listening to their language, their perception, and how they see themselves in society, is that a lot of them have already given up. That's the slave. It's easy to be a slave. You're getting spoon-fed, you're getting four hots in the cot, as they say in the prison system, and you you know what you're going to get every day. It's predictable. That's one thing about human beings. We're creatures of comfort. That's why we set up cities and and set up corner stores and drug stores and supermarkets. It's the ease and comfort of not having to actually pick up a gun or pick up a crossbow and going out and hunting a deer or some other animal, killing it, draining the blood out, skinning it, taking the guts out before the meat putrefies and, and, and using it for what you need it for. That's what life would have been for us. So we become creatures of comfort and it's easier to go into that slavery because it's easy. That's what makes it so attractive. It's easy. The hard thing to do is to go into the unknown because the unknown has unpredictability with it. That's what made our ancestors who uh, populated the entire planet so brave. They took to boats, didn't know where they were going to end up. New flora, new fauna, new predators. They had no idea. They had to start from scratch in a new land. They had to discover the deities of that land and create their spiritual and symbol systems around those symbols they found in that new land. And most times they were correlated with things they, that they left in Africa, but they knew that this was a new environment, so they had to learn this new environment. They had to make, make um, connections with the ancestral deities of those places in order to learn the plants, the healing plants, and um, the different places they could go to maybe take care of themselves until they could build structures. All of that stuff comes with bravery. That's, that's, that's as brave as it gets. A, a semi-modern version of that is in the Maasai, when you go through your rite of passage at 13 as a male. They give you a spear. They give you the, the, the red um, 
blanket that they wrap themselves in. I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my head right now. And they tell you to come back with a lion, a male lion. And once you come back with that male lion, you've passed your test of manhood. If you don't come back, Wait. we know you never passed that test of manhood. So at 13, you – go ahead. No, I'm they just, just um, correlating something. Years ago. Yeah, I'm correlating something. Hold on. This is how they probably got the idea in, 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 in um, Roman – because remember that, I mean, you guys have probably seen it because it's a popular movie. It was well done, even though it's, a, you know, there's a lot of black misandry in it. And it's an ancient, it's a based on, you know, it's kind of like they falsified the story just to make it look glamorous. But the movie mm-hmm. 300, the movie yeah. 300, the, the two scenes that stuck in my head was when they yeah. went to see the, or, the Oracle, which is something yeah. ancient that almost every tribe does. But a lot of people don't know the Oracle of Delphi in Greece were two black women they kidnapped from Egypt. Ah. And they would they would get them drunk or get them high on spirits, and then they would actually predict the future. And they were so accurate, people would come from all around to go to who they call they call them the two black doves. That was the name for them. They were two black women they kidnapped from Egypt that were their oracle. They housed them in the temple, and they would do readings for, for people who came to see them and would leave the proper offerings. So you are correct. And the other one was when he went on the, the hunt for the um Yes. Yes. Was it a bear? I don't it by, wasn't a bear. By himself. No. I know was in the right kind of it was gigantic, a bear. It was some kind of like gigantic wolf or something like that. It wasn't yes, a bear. It was like a yeah. yeah, they made it look like a dire wolf. So it was probably like a wolf, because dire wolves been extinct by the time even Spartans were around. And I know like if you ever seen the um the show Vikings the son um, actually had an encounter by himself with a polar bear. And then he got the skin of the bear, and he was known as Ironside. That was his name. He was um, one of the sons of Rathnall Lothbrook. That comes from the Maasai. The Maasai would send a 13-year-old out, and their rite of passage was for them to come home with a male lion. Now, they would hear stories about lions tearing all kinds of animals to bits and pieces, but they would send him out and tell him, come with that male lion, and they would usually, you know, prepare the skin and whatnot, and it would be part of what they would wear. Just like they also wore the leopard skin smocks, the high priest. And you see that from Kemet down to, to um, Azania, or Azania, also known as South Africa. They, they, the traditional people still wear the leopard skin smock. You go to Kemet, you see it all over the world of Kemet. There's pictures of King, King Tutankhamun with that leopard skin smock and a lot of other kings. So you're absolutely correct. They got it from that because those were one of our rites of, of passage. And that child would go out, kill that male lion. He would have to fend off the rest of the prize and come back with that lion. And they would actually go through the ritualistic ceremony to graduate them into manhood. And then he would start his warrior training. So gender roles were clearly defined. And for the male, it was about protection and being able to hunt and bring meat back because meat was a supplement to the vegetarian diet in that area. Mm. So, so this goes back into courage, into courage now, and that's what I was, I was getting right. at is that the, the, the reality is that I've noticed is that since I stepped back, I realized that there was a certain type of energy that I was giving off that made people want to come and talk to me and made people want to, and they were just, people were, and, and I noticed this since I've stepped back is that people now pry into my private life and pry into my day. How was your weekend? What did you do? What are you going to do? What do you want to do? And now I realize I got to put up this wall because I realized mm-hmm. there's something about them needing that energy. And I don't know, I can't put a finger on it, 
but it, there's something to it that I've seen, and I've, I've had one of my boys show me, like, like he pulled back at his job, and he was like, ever since he pulled back, it's like he was like a conduit for everybody else. Like, like he was the, the, ener the energy that people wanted because it was, he was more unique about everybody else, and he wasn't really trying to assimilate. And people could sense you know why? That. And that's the thing. That's the thing that I'm noticing is that people can sense that you're not on the same, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I saw you know, you know why? Because I'm not getting the right words. I drop it on you because we talked about this on the cows, and I built on this a few times with Gus. If you start a job and you're less codified when you start the job and you start to learn about codification and you become more adept at reading the colonizer and how they're interacting on the job, and you start to codify, they're seeing an abrupt shift from the person they knew into someone new, and that person is more mysterious. So now, white people, being the master psychologist they are, are going to want to pick your brain. They want to find out what makes you tick. It's just like posting on Facebook all the time. They build up a dossier of your thoughts and ideas and, and the way you think. So you end up on the alphabet boys list because you post in a lot of Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and you know, Thomas Sankara and Patrice Lumumba and Julius Nerele, and they're like, wait a minute. This little nigga, we got to keep an eye on. He, he's, he's talking about freedom and freedom fighters, and look all over his page. There's a who's who of all the different black people who, who are anti-colonialists. So on the job, I always tell people, you start off codified, so there is no change to be made. There's no intrigue if you come to the job already acting codified. You already know what you don't do. You already know what you don't say. You already know what conversations you're not going to have, and you set those boundaries from day one. But if you come in and you, our normal behavior is to be open and to be friendly and, you know, to, to get in the mix and to become part of the quote-unquote proverbial family, which is what a lot of these jobs propagate, and that goes back to slavery times. You be enslaved, they might be raping you if you a, a, a house slave, raping you every night, but you a member of the family. Use my nigga. That's the way they think. So when you go to the job and they're like, you're a part of the so-and-so company family, it's the same psychology. We just don't make the connection. So what happens mm -hmm. is you start off and you're a part of the family. You know what I mean? And you're doing your thing and, you know, you're all in the mix with everyone. And, you know, you're talking about the sports you like and all the other things that you like to indulge in when you're outside of the job that's safe to talk about. And all of a sudden you start learning about white people and how they think and the things they do to people on the job and you start codifying. Then it's like, well, wait a minute. This person used to be like way more open. Now all of a sudden they kind of keep to themselves. They don't have much to say. I mean, they're courteous and stuff, but that's not the same guy. Like he doesn't talk anymore. Now I need to pick his brain before he was giving me the information freely. That's the key. Facebook, you give it away freely. Before the internet, the FBI used to have to get a warrant to go steal your garbage or break into your house and tap your phone. They had to go through steps to break, break you know, to illegally violate your, your rights to privacy. Today, they just create an engine and human beings being um, social creatures, we want to belong. So everybody flocks to Facebook. I want to be normal. I want to belong. So I get a Facebook. And all of a sudden, I'm telling the world everything about me. I'm in McDonald's eating the cheeseburger at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on 49th Street and 5th Avenue. You're telling everything. They don't need to hunt you down with a warrant because you tell everything. <laughs> That's the difference. You were, telling, you were giving it away freely. You started to learn, and you stopped giving it away freely. And that is an energy exchange. 
That's what the delectable Negro is about. Mm-hmm. They're also energy vampires. They're sucking you dry in ways that you can't even comprehend as a black person because they're used to consuming us on so many levels that the average black person would be flabbergasted if they truly understood the term consumption and what it means in a system of white supremacy. Still reading that book, by the way, man. Still reading that. Oh, book. yeah. It, it's, it's one you study. Yeah. It's one you read a yeah, few yeah. times because it'll blow your mind, man. It gives you deep insight. So I hope I, I answered your question with that, too, as far as... Um... Go ahead, Jenna. Say, that's why I went first. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Left hook taken. Left hook taken. Switch gears though on this because I also we have to get into this uh, detransformation. We have to. Oh, get detransitioning. Yes. 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 Without question. Thank you for the correction. Detransitioning. No because this is happening on an even more massive scale than what the uh, young brother was talking about. Uh, a lot of it's not even being reported, and in some cases, especially with uh, with women. I mean, as much as I hate to say, they're they're actually uh, hurting each other because one is ready to go back into a natural state of being and the other one is refusing to let go. They do not Mm -hmm. want to release what they believe that they have and it's becoming deadly uh, because he brought up the fact that the the, uh, suspected racist uh, woman was getting was getting flack on uh on social media yes in real life uh, black women and black men are getting hurt in real life when they decide they want to change so uh like what what are some of the ways that because this i have no answer to uh i have i have cousins who are uh homosexuals some that have uh, reverted back, some that has not changed. Uh, but especially with the women, they all tend to want to have children. They they want to be mothers. Uh, and like I said, some of them go back to the normal way of living, uh, what I consider normal. Let me clarify that. Uh, Heterosexual lifestyle. And others... Uh, sometimes want to adopt or what have you, but they want to participate in, like you stated, a heterosexual lifestyle. And some of them are losing their lives because of this, not just from suicide either. So uh, like how, uh, and this goes for any caller uh, or listener or anybody who checks out the podcast uh, later on this week, um, how do you see that happening and what do you tell your own family or friends or what have you who are going through this? And sometimes they may not come right out and tell you, they just may give you little small hints, you know, uh, you know, you might have a homosexual talking about they having baby fever, you know, and a, a lot of us may just laugh it off as if it's not real, but after all, they do still have all of the female organs and uh, all of the feelings and what have you. Mm-hmm. It's it's getting so much to the attention that it's becoming a, a, a constant and like these uh, viral comics that's coming up uh, through social media. They're starting mm-hmm. to talk 
about this uh, a lot. Like these are small signals that are being shown that a lot of us normally just overlook. So I'd like to ask you brothers and the sisters that's listening as well. Like if you had somebody that uh, come to you, like what would you tell them? Okay. Um, I'll start first. I think this is very interesting because you're right. The most suicidal group of all the alphabets are the transgenders. And it's because of exactly what you said, you know, over time, they, they they feel different than how they felt that made them go through that you know surgery and hormone therapy and all of that in the first place. Hey, I played, a lot of them. I played that suspected races like I I rewinded that on purpose. So when you listen to that, good. that you'll see. I let him finish his speech and then I played it again uh, just to kind of double down on your brain. Go ahead, Ross. My apologies. No problem. So what it is is. A lot of them are getting into this stuff young. Like that, that girl in the video was 13. And a 13-year-old's brain is not developed. They're, not, they're just beginning puberty, so they have no real concept of sexuality at all. And just like a lot of the doctors who treat these people have said, if they are supported, not supported in doing um, anti-sexual or deviant behavior, but supporting them as people with love, and you just, you know, you allow them to explore their sexual confusion, that usually by the end of puberty, they end up falling on the right side of where they belong. It is the environmental cultivation. That's why the guy said we're manufacturing transgenders. Because, again, we talk about it before. 75% of sexual identity comes from the environment. So you love the person, you don't support the behavior. And... You, what you find is that if a person is a lesbian who says they want children, usually they come from a background where they've been mistreated by men. Not all of them, but most of them tend to have been raped or some sort of, you know, abuse, physical abuse or physical and sexual abuse or sexual abuse from a male. So they end up being totally averted to men. And in order for them to have children, they don't have the ability to go through the expensive stuff that white people do, taking, you know, sperm cells and creating babies with three parents. Black people don't have that luxury. So what they end up having to do is somehow reconcile and work out the issues they have with what happened to them to be able to love a man to get pregnant and have a child. And it takes a lot of self-work to get to that place. Most people don't want to go through the self-work, so they decide to become antisexual. To me, that video was great, a great example of the fact that this is a choice. That girl was in the midst of taking hormones. And immediately said, I'm not cutting off my breasts. Ain't nobody cutting my titties off. Nope, no thank you. I'll quit the, the hormones. I'm going back to being a girl. It's cool with me. It's a choice. We've just been societally cultivated into accepting the lies that they tell us. Dunning-Kruger effect. Most of us don't really understand transgender and, you know, um, body dysmorphia and gender, gender dysphoria and all of this type of stuff. So we go along with what the quote-unquote experts are saying. But the experts are the ones who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of hormone therapy and the surgery. Do you know how much these doctors get paid for a freaking surgery? All of the money. Well over six figures. Most surgeries. Not all, but most of them, especially things dealing with gender. You're dealing with 150, 100,000. Like, it's a lot of money involved in that. So, of course, they're going to tell you, yes, you need these hormones. 
you know, they can kill you, but you, we're not going to tell you that. You need these hormones, and you need to cut off your penis and, you know, reform your labias, majora, minora, and your clitoris into a penis. They're making wild money off of that. Like like the guy said in the video, it's a business. Yo. And we're manufacturing these, these transgender children. And I wanted to briefly go over a very short thing on the Hegelian dialectic because the transgender issue is an exact example of that. And this was from Wake Up World. It's one of my favorite articles on it, and it's short. It's, um, it says, the, the politics of polarity, the Hegelian dialectic, and its use in controlling modern society. So what exactly is the Hegelian dialectic? George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel was a 19th century German philosopher who devised a particular method of argument for resolving disagreements. His method of arriving at the quote-unquote truth by exchanging logical arguments is a system of thought still in use today. To put it simply, the basis of Hegelianism assumes that the human mind can't understand anything unless it can be split into two polar opposites, good, evil, right, wrong, left, right, thesis, and antithesis. For example, when people are talking about two political parties, what they're referring to without realizing it is the thesis and the antithesis based on the Hegelian dialectic. The only real debate that occurs on any subject relates to the minor differences between those two parties. Nothing is said or done about the issues that neither left nor right is discussing. In polarity politics, they control, again, in polarity politics, they control the agenda. In Australia, this, in Australia, this in particular will become more apparent as the election draws near, creating a problem to solve. Here we go. This is transgender right here. We're manufacturing this. Another form of the Hegelian dialectic is problem, reaction, solution. Most of us unwittingly fall victim to it all too often. And sadly, if we don't stop, we will continue to lose our free will and liberty. It has been widely used by our governments and corporations around the world. You can say that in terms of controlling the masses and society in general, its deployment has been an effective tool in keeping humanity in check. Almost all major events in history employed the Hegelian dialectic of problem, manufacture a, or manufacturing a crisis, or take advantage of one already in place in order to get the desired reaction of the public outcry, whereby the public demands a solution, which has already been predetermined from the very beginning. A classic example is 9-11. Only when you break the left-right paradigm and come to the realization that the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and the whole fake and not to mention contradictory war on terror was always the desired outcome for neoconservatives in the Bush administration and the military-industrial complex. They even stated in their own white papers the need for another catastrophic and catalyzing event to solve, like a quote-unquote new Pearl Harbor, and to their benefit, they got one. There is more, there's more, there, excuse me, here's a more current example of the Hegelian dialectic in use. In Australia at present, this article published in 2013, both the main political part, both of the main political parties on the eve of the upcoming election on September 7th are discussing quote unquote boat people, a derogatory term to describe refugees and asylum seekers displaced by war and other hardships. I don't believe they constitute what you would call a quote unquote crisis, and statistics clearly show that they aren't, but our quote unquote government is telling us they are a problem. Problem. Again, the media is used to play up this problem in order to instigate a reaction, a.k.a. a debate, in the public domain on how to tackle the problem, meaning these refugees. Both the opposition and ruling party offer their solution. 
And the result, the introduction of hardline, quote-unquote, border protection, sounds like Trump, policies at the expense of refugees' human rights. We're experiencing that right now. This is from 2013. Again, we see that the only real debate occurring is just minor differences between those two parties. Nothing is said or done about the many other more important issues that neither left or right is discussing. Seeing through the theatrics. In order to avoid falling victim to the Hegelian dialectic from now on, you must remember the process involved. Anytime a major problem or issue arises in society, think about who will gain or profit from it. Then remove yourself from the equation, take a step back, and look at it from a third-party perspective. See the so-called quote-unquote problem, look at who is reacting, why, and what way. Then look for who's offering up the solution. When you do this, you'll quickly see the real truth instead of the false truth they wanted you to see. And that's the end of the article. So when you look at things that are divisive amongst people, we're seeing it right now with the immigrant crisis on the border, the treatment of, of, of American Africans towards uh, black immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean. It's that Hegelian dialectic, that polar opposite. And the masses are manipulating that to create dissension. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you go to the African continent and they're making inroads left and right to try and create a cohesion amongst both diasporan Africans and continental Af Africans. Even with all the other stuff that's taking place, the overall movement is towards a pan-African unity. And yet, for the first time in a long time, in America specifically, there's this divisive situation between native-born Americans and immigrants. And it doesn't make any sense, but when you get into the history of the people who lead this movement, especially uh, Ms. Carnell and her connection to the, um, the Trump-supporting right-wing racist anti-immigrant group that she belongs to. She actually she came out and said she's a member of the board. Then you can see where black immigrants have an issue with ADOS, not necessarily because of ADOS seeking rep reparations. That's, that's a no-brainer. It's the people and their connection to this group that is racist white supremacist and anti-immigrant at the same time that is using immigrants as the problem that needs to be solved, but it's only amongst black Americans. And just to say this, when we looked at South Africa and what they were doing to the immigrants from Nigeria, most specifically, and they were mistreating Ethiopian immigrants, at first people were calling it xenophobia. And me, what am I, and a bunch of others said it's not xenophobia, it's self-hatred, because the only people that they're focusing their anger on are the black immigrants, not the Indians, not the Arabs, not the Syrians, not the Lebanese. Only other black African immigrants were getting this treatment. And when you look at what's happening in America with those, not all ADOS, let me just make that correct, not all, say this, make this clear, not all ADOS feel this way, but the ones who are playing the race politics and indulging in the Hegelian dialectic, these particular folks are practicing self-hatred. Because the only immigrant group that is being vitriol, vitriolically attacked like that are black African and black Caribbean immigrants. They don't say anything about the whites, which is the majority of the immigrants that come here. They don't say anything about the Indians, the Arabs. Sometimes they'll speak about the Latinos, but very, very little compared to all the vitriol they have for black, Amer black African and black Caribbean immigrants. So it's self-hatred again. It's only being directed towards one group, not everybody. So it's not xenophobia. And that is the Hegelian dialectic at work, because while we're arguing with each other, the leader of ADOS, Carnell, is in bed with a white supremacist group that's anti-immigrant that is working to put Trump in office. 
So when she's telling everyone, go ahead with the downvoting, meaning that you only vote for one party and you cease to vote for the president, then she's basically offering Donald Trump, you know, offering Donald Trump to see. And we know that if the Republicans get in office, there's going to be no reparations. They're not trying to pay. They're the most anti-reparation party of the two parties. And again, it's two wings on the same bird. It's two wings on the same bird, which is white supremacy. So there's the Hegelian dialectic and how it plays itself out in just simply simple but yet powerful ways in society. And just from that little read about 2013 and what happened in the Australia elections and what took place afterwards and the use of immigrants as the quote-unquote problem that needed to be solved, we're now in 2019 and we're seeing the same sort of uh, discussions being had about black immigrants and the problems that they quote-unquote cause when a lot of the statistical information is not what everybody thinks it is. It's actually a lot more positive as far as the impact of immigrants specifically black immigrants and other immigrants in general in the country and the way the country functions. But we'll just end it there for now. But I just wanted to kind of toss that out there in regard to that discussion. You, you hit it right on the head. And it's, uh, like you say, the Hegelian dialectic. And also this, uh, make sure I say this correctly, the, uh, the Dunning-Kruger, like these... These tactics are being uh, stacked. They're being stacked upon. So when you see, if you look deep enough, you'll see them kind of uh, mashing together because it's a it's a combination yep. of these. And and just to be completely honest, most of us have children. Most of us have jobs that we have to take care of, and that's not even including none of our own private activities. Cause some of us got activities that's not so good for us. And some of us have some that are, but neither, neither one is really matters at this point. It's just, uh, I just say that to say that we have a lot of time that's being spent outside of researching these particular uh, issues. So when we find a particular issue, especially when it, um, uh, when it moves our spirit, you know what I'm saying? It give those endorphins, start having those pop off in our brain. We tend to cling to it. And most times we tend to forget some of the small details that are actually give us the answers to the questions that we're asking. Uh, but uh, I mean, you explained that pretty well. I don't, I think if I get into it, I just confuse people. So, because I, I just have more questions than actual answers. So I'm going to just leave that be. But I also wanted to discuss this about the, uh, about, uh, let me see, what was the name of that? Well, they was talking about the, uh, what black Americans can learn from the, uh, from the Somali Sufis. Yes. Yeah. So uh, just without getting into that, I wanted to read this article that goes directly into it because he talked specifically about the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, this yeah. article right here that I'm finna go over, this con- this came out in August. So this was just two months ago. Congressional Black Caucus Institute takes core civic cash, boosts policies that help private prisons. This is exactly what he was talking about, where they don't even actually need our help anymore because they don't have to come fundraising out in our towns uh, don't have to give us no input on anything because 
we're not paying we're not paying them to do that it it sounds great to say that uh those black people or 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 those black people are going to look out for our interests because they go through the same thing that we do and maybe in some cases if they get caught by some uh by some slave catcher who don't recognize their face. Yeah, they'll, they'll go through the treatment just as well. And maybe some of them may even get murdered. But for the most part, they are so widely known, unfortunately, not by us, but they're so widely known where they're at by the slave catchers and the uh, suspected races that, that be in the areas that they be in. No hands are being touched. I mean, no, no hands are touching them. That's what I meant. But what happens is, is that they still get to uh, make decisions on our behalf. And then we get upset because they're making decisions. But remember, just like with any politician, if you're not putting money in their pocket, then they have, they have nothing, nothing whatsoever for you. They, they could care less about what you think about what they're doing because you're not feeding them. I think that's something that we need to take a, a big look at because it's not, it's not fair to your children. Excuse me. Not, I don't want to say that. It's not just, you're not providing justice to your children. If you don't go out and make whatever vote for your uh, voting for these people, or paying those little fees that it takes to, uh, cause just like with anything, one hand washes the other and we haven't been paying the, uh, I guess the tax for lack of a better term, we haven't been paying them anything and expecting them to make decisions. That's the best for us. That's, that's insanity. Uh, the definite- I want to add to that. Go ahead. Excuse me for interjecting. I want to add to that. Um, yeah, in order to that, – that's the major thing, and even Malcolm used to say that. Black people don't really understand politics. They talk like they do Dunning-Kruger effect, but they really don't understand politics. And it's all about who owns the politician. The reason why the white people get what they want done is because they make politicians their whores. They buy them. They own them. They, 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 they get them in compromising situations with um, – with females that's not their wives or catch them do, using drugs and they use those things against them as well as lining their pockets. And what it is is that black people in most areas don't do that. And as a result, we don't get anything. And like Jenna knows personally because his grandmother, thank you, I'm a Luke Choice, was one of those black people who understood how politics really works. So as a result, she knew how to get those politicians in positions where she needed them to, where she could get stuff done for the local community in Tennessee, where she lived. And she did it her whole life. Black people don't understand that. That's one. The other thing is this. The immigrants who have superseded black people nowadays that white people are pandering up to and are facilitating at this point the slow move towards moving them to the white race category are the Latinos. There's more of them in this country than us. So even numerologically, when they look at who's more valuable, who has more numbers that, that can actually politically side with them to get things done, it's the Latinos, not the blacks. So, the, so while, again, done in crew, and I'm um, Hegelian dialectic, while some AOS is focused on black immigrants and black immigrants only, the immigrants that are actually facilitating nullifying the power of black Americans are the Latino immigrants 
who are not only in the country, but they also have the highest birth rate of any group in the country. Black immigrants are the smallest group of people ever allowed in the country in any given year, and they're the most vulnerable because they're abused like black Americans, and they're also deported for frivolous reasons. We're the first people to kick the heck out of this country for any reason possible. So, again, I always tell black Americans, understand that the treatment of black immigrants directly ties to the mistreatment of black Americans. And if they can make connections with these immigrant groups, and, and I've always said, I said it a couple shows ago, America is your house. We are, get, we are guests in your house. Whenever you have a guest in your house, don't you lay the ground rules for what's allowed and not allowed in your house? So, so why is it when you have immigrants coming here, nobody's willing to take a step? Because you've got to understand, immigrants are freaking scared as heck. They come here. They hear that, that American Africans are horrible people. They're dangerous. Don't mess with them. Some of them are actually accosted in the airport before they're released into the public, and this is reinforced. That is not discounting the fact that thanks to anti-black media, you have BET and all the negative programming being shown in other countries. The news showing black people doing crime is shown in other countries. So they're getting a full dose of anti-black, anti-American African rhetoric before they get here. Then they're going to possibly get it in the airport and be ushered into the world. You think they're going to really feel like they're compelled to talk to an American African, especially if they don't have connections to people in their country that are working with other black people on pan-African agendas who could tell them what you're hearing and seeing about black Americans isn't true? It's up to the people who own the house to say, look, now that you're here, we need to sit down and have a little conversation just about what you walked into here because you walked into warfare being propagated against our people and misinformation being propagated to you about who we are. So let's give you a history lesson on that, and then they can do the same for you about where they're coming from and what caused them to come there, because in a lot of cases, it's America's government with black Americans involved in it through the military that's causing the problems that make them have to leave their countries to come here in the first place. And nobody's talking about reparations for the actions of, of ADOS in other countries. Is that going to be a discussion, too, since we're all hating on each other and just not willing to work through our issues to get to the problem-solving aspect? That's what it's about. And the Hegelian dialectic creates that divide, and we just ride the wave of the divide. And then we have the Dunning-Kruger effect with a bunch of people, race pimps, all over YouTube having all this horrible stuff to say about immigrants, and it's not true. And then you have some immigrants doing the same. I'm not saying that. But the number of immigrants doing that is minuscule. It, 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 it's, it's a non-factor. But those few people are blown up, and then everybody just rides the bandwagon, them immigrants this, them immigrants that. But when you go to every important struggle in this country that's ever happened, immigrants are all in it. All mm-hmm. in it. Some hey, of them are the know, founders of it, these things. And the respect a, is not there. We have to love each other. Go ahead, brothers. There's another large uh, portion of this in uh, proximity. That's a big part of this. There's a lot of people who uh, who make these assumptions about immigrants. I mean, just other black people in general. They don't even have to be immigrants. It could just they could find one small piece of information and they just attack that. Uh, for one, because they have never been anywhere else. So all they have it's a lot of black people. It's a lot of black people here in the nation that have not been a hundred square miles from where they were born. So, so for them to tell you what's going on across the country, 
you should have pause just on that alone. Uh, me myself being in the Navy and you know, that's, that's nothing that that's really fascinating. I mean, you know, I was out mistreating people when I was younger, you know, uh, what, what the slave catchers say, we just following orders. Like when you, mm-hmm. that is something that you say, uh, something that I actually, uh, keep, it won't keep you up because you could put the onus on someone else. And, and we tend to do that, especially when we've been hurt ourselves. Most time we look for the weakest person that we can attack. And that's normally what happens. We, and who, who is that? Who is the weakest person that we can attack as black people, other black people. We do that all the time. I mean, and like I said, the most vulnerable of those are black immigrants. Because if you make any mistakes in this country, they're going to deport you immediately. Uh-huh. And let me just explain to people what getting deported from, the, from America entails as a Caribbean immigrant with relatives that were deported and knowing other people's stories who have been deported. When you come from the islands, and Cujo could probably verify this too as a Jamaican, if you get kicked out of America, you become the scorn of your family, especially if it's for some crime stuff. If you got caught selling drugs or robbing somebody or you got an assault charge that got you kicked out of the country, when you come back, you are looked at as a piece of dookie because they look at it like you wasted your your time in the land of milk and honey, not understanding that America is race hell. It just it just provides for opportunities in ways that the small island doesn't, well, depending on your life circumstance and family situation. Go ahead. What are you going to say before? Well, I and I'm I'm sure I don't know about this as intimately as you do, but I I have friends that uh that I've been knowing for years that then mm-hmm. I don't get in contact with them no more. I'm, <laughs> so these were all people that I've met while in the navy, but. Mm-hmm. What I was explained is that not only do they look at them like how you describe, but they have so much self-pride is that when somebody returns home for those particular situations, whether they done it or not, they are looked at in a type of way because they have disgraced the actual country. They yeah. only become stigmatized. Right. So, so you have brought that that outlook onto all of us, not just not just our family, but to us in general, which makes it country next family to be able to make it out. Yep, and not only that, but you also have people who were who were born in the islands and they came there as babies. I'll give you an example: Bangham Smurf, who used to run with Fifty Cent. He was ex- he was came here from Trinidad as a child. Grew up in New York, got into a whole host of trouble, busting guns at people, assault charges, drugs, you name it. He was protecting 50 a lot, so he was shooting at a lot of people. It was a serious thing for him out in Queens. Eventually, he got caught up while 50 was blowing up. He went to jail. 50 refused to give him some money he owed him, and he wasn't able to get a good lawyer. He ended up getting deported. This was what I saw him say in an interview. When he got back to Trinidad, he didn't know anyone in his family because he had been there since he was a little boy. He hadn't seen those people in 20-something 30 years. So you got family who don't know you. You've disgraced the family because you got kicked out of America for getting into trouble, doing things that you had no business doing, right? On top of that, nobody was taking him in. None of his relatives really wanted to take him in. He ended up in his grandmother's old house because his father owned the house and whatnot. But his connection with his family was kind of, kind of, it's better now, but it wasn't that great when he first got back. 
And he ended up getting with other street people in Trinidad, which is how the crime rate escalates in these islands, because you have these deportees who get kicked out of the U.S., and they have a Class A criminal education. Mm-hmm. And they're going to a small backwards island that's still connected to, the, to their former colonizers, dealing with the Privy Council and all this old colonialist nonsense. And they're ill-prepared for computer-savvy, gun-savvy um, killers, some of them, that are willing to do whatever it takes. And then you unleash them on the society back home. Their family wants nothing to do with them, most of them. And they end up back with outlaws that are just as savvy as them, and they wreak havoc because the citizens don't know nothing about what's going on, and the country itself is ill-prepared. So the experience for these people is horrific, and the, the most vulnerable black group in the United States are black immigrants. So for us, for us as a group to get it from black Americans, who we are looking for solidarity with, that's the thing. Like, black Americans set the trajectory for global the global black cultural shift. So all these other countries, even these countries that America has screwed up, their people still look to America. Even though you got some black Americans involved in the stuff that's taking place in their countries, killing their leaders and restructuring the society and stealing from them. There's a lot of black Americans involved in all of that, but they still look at those black Americans with awe, like, yo, they've done the best. And they actually had some of the greatest movements against white supremacy in human history. This is not discounting the incredible stuff that happened on the continent and in the islands and whatnot. But because American culture is the most globally recognized culture, that's what sets the, 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 the precedent of how it's looked at by other black groups. They're willing to ignore their own incredible history and latch on to what they see with American blacks. And then you come here. And you like, first of all, you're scared because you don't know what type of black American you're going to meet based on the misinformation you got. And then on top of that, you know, it's hard to make inroads because you speak with an accent. You might be teased. You might be mistreated. And then once you finally start to, to mingle with them, you start to really shed the misinformation. Okay, they're not what, what I was told. I got a really close friend, you know, who's black American. He's awesome. His mom is cool. She treats me like one of her own children. When he comes to my house, my mother treats him like one of her children. But we gotta be. We have to be the the same welcoming, the same petting Amber Geiger. These are black people conditioned, both Caribbean and American Africans, to worship white people. We need to look at each other with with the same kind of love and admiration. Hey. And it don't mean that everybody's gonna be, you know, treating each other correct because some of us are just assholes. Excuse my French, but some of us just are in both groups. But we have to be able to discard those people and really connect with people who are of good character. And it's not hard to do. Why is it we're willing to sift through a thousand white people to look for the one good white person, but when it comes to that one Caribbean person who may have told you off, oh, all them so-and-sos are like this and that and the third, screw them. They're taking our jobs. But these people have kidnapped the ancestors from Africa, intergenerationally raped and pillaged your family, left left you in a state where the average black American only has $7,000 to pass on to their relatives if they have anything, most are starting from nothing, and the average white family has at least $150,000 to pass to their relatives, but yet you're looking at the black immigrant with hatred. If I don't know what's misplaced anger, that's the greatest example of it. With and that, why is it you don't paint them with the broadest brush when your life is in the most dangerous school with them, but yet you're painting others with the broadest brush who look just like you and the most vulnerable of the people that belong to your racial group. 
and these are the people that can bolster your numbers politically to help you achieve certain things in political office with the right approach, like the brother was talking about with the Black Congressional Caucus. Those are the people that's the greatest impediment to the upper mobility of black people, a bunch of traitorous black folks that are American who are in bed with white supremacy. So they, they, they nullify everything that's helpful to the people. We see it because of the state of black people specifically black Americans. They're directly involved in that, the black caucus. <laughs> hey, with that being And said, like he said about the Sufis, one second, like he said about the Sufis, okay, the okay. Sufis had to come together, choose organic leaders from the, their own people, and fight for themselves. So black Americans need to choose organic from people leaders that can represent them in the black caucus that will represent their political issues and move forward towards reparations the way it's supposed, because that's long overdue. It's, it's long overdue for all of the groups, but in America, it is the most overdue reparations in history. When you look at the actual factual history, it is ridiculous that this is even being discussed still. It should have been a past event, but you can't pay reparations for ongoing terrorism. Mm. The prison industrial complex, uh, Tatiana being shot in her own house, uh, Bussum Jean being shot in his own house. Uh, you can just name it. So how are they going to pay you reparations when they're still mistreating you and killing you? That means that there has to be a reparations package in perpetuity. We're going to continue to kill you, so we're just going to give you reparations while we just kill you all every day. How about that, black people? Mm. Mm. And you're in a country that is refusing. They're, they are not... The last thing they want to do is give you reparations because it, the, the reparations package would be the entire plus gross national product of the United States. The entire monetary worth of the entire United States government is what they owe black people like two or three times over. So they're not going to bankrupt themselves just to take care of black people. You're talking about white folks, the most terroristic, selfish, narcissistic, psychopathic, sociopathic, pedophilic, bestialic people on the face of the earth. And they're just going to, sure, yeah, we'll give you reparations. They're not going to do that. We want them to. They should. And there's probably ways, great ways of politically putting them in checkmate to force them to do so. But everybody who had that idea was killed, most notably Malcolm X. Well, they was murdered. That's, that's also, Rick yeah, that's what I'm saying. Same, a lot of people don't know. Johnny Cochran was doing the same thing. He was amassing black lawyers, the best black lawyers in the country, to take the United States government to court for human rights atrocities and genocide against black Americans. And he so happened to die of uh, brain cancer from overuse of cell phones. Mm. I say that his phone was weaponized. And he got higher Mm. concentrated doses of them radio waves to cook his brain and cause that cancer. I could be wrong. I don't know for sure. But that's just the way white people in America are when it comes to taking out black people. They have the most savvy ways of murdering people ever devised in human history. I mean, they got Malcolm X had that idea before Johnny Cochran. They put a ton of holes in him. They got a movie. Read the Judas Factor. Go ahead. They got a movie called Kingsman that gives you a a visual picture of uh, cell phone waves killing people. Mm -hmm. It's one of the easiest things to weaponize. And once you have the proper programs and you can hack into those phones, you saw it with the Stuxnet virus. They can make the Stuxnet virus that was almost created, um, I believe it was a a nuclear explosion, 
because um, it, the Stuxnet virus had taken over a nuclear power plant and started revving up all the machinery to a point where it was becoming unstable. They can do that with your cell phones. Hey, Roz, gotta cut you off. For those of you who have not chimed in, if you have anything that you want to add before we get ready to get up out of here, you go ahead, open up your mic, then you give us your uh, your comments or your questions. Name where you're calling from and your comment or question. Absolutely. Please do. And if not, we go ahead on and uh, get into these comments. Uh, I had something else to talk about, too. Yeah. Maybe one of the clips we talked that we played that we didn't get to talk about yet. Let me see real quick. The... the the next one was the um the, uh, the 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 recreation of the slave trade dealing with the slave trade in Libya. Now Obama and Hillary Clinton or Hillary Clinton is directly behind all of that, and they were selling people. I read in multiple articles for as little as four hundred U.S. dollars. So you can just pretty much go there, purchase a person, and do whatever you want to them. There's stories of women being raped as well as the men being raped. So men are getting anally penetrated after being bought and abused and they're being killed. And the biggest thing is the organ selling. They are killing people and just carving them up for their organs and shipping them out to recipients around, rich recipients around the world. That is a major issue of what's taking place in Libya right now. And one country that I applaud with the utmost respect is the government of Rwanda, Kagame incredible person. He's not perfect. He has a lot of flaws. There's some things under his belt that are a little bit off-putting, but overall, he has some of the most progressive moves for the African continent. Rwanda is the Silicon Valley of the entire continent, just to let people know, and he took in 30,000 refugees from Libya into Rwanda to give them a safe new place to live. So I give him maximum respect for that move. Again, another Pan-African move, and you notice what they said, the darker the skin, the more severe their mistreatment is. Mm. Brother say, um, Hayes, he's the darkest person in his family and the most severely mistreated in his family. And many black families, people have that story of being the dark-skinned person, and as a result, you're abused and mistreated. So the psychology of white supremacy is the culture of a lot of black people in America. And it plays out even in, within family relations like that. We just don't. We need to. Go ahead. I say we just don't even know it. Yeah, we need to exorcise, like the exorcist, exorcise those, the white, the white chip. Get it out. Discard it and destroy it immediately. And what you'll start to see is as you start to actually learn the truth about the people and about yourself and about real history, a lot of those things, those ill feelings will dissipate because you start to realize that they're erroneous. You've been misled. You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, <laughs> like, like Malcolm said. It's real serious. And the effect that it has on us as a people is it's devastating. It creates suicidal tendencies. It creates violence amongst our people. Um, it's, it's quite scary. What? Because I always tell people, when whatever black people adopt, whether it's good or bad, we perfect it. So when we do horrible things, we're the best at doing the most horrible things. And when we do wonderful things, we're the best at doing the most wonderful things. So we have to start seeking to do the things that are positive, just, and uplifting for our people. 
collectively and have a code about how we deal with each other. And if you come across someone who is not on the code, same code as you, you leave them alone. It's that cut and dry. Have no contact. Minimize contact to minimize conflict. And when you come in contact with black people that are like-minded and about the upliftment of our people and, and trying to help each other grow and, and, and make it further along the journey of life and survive the system that we live in, those are the people you cleave unto. And like I said, vet their character because their character will set the trajectory for the quality of that relationship, regardless to where in the spectrum they fall, whether they're that friend that's not that smart, that friend that's just like you, that's in, just close to that same level as you in the, in, in the finding and growing of themselves, or the person who might be your senior in, in that, in that um, path of life. But if they have good character, that will set the trajectory for the quality of your relationship with them and their relationship with you. What you are going to say, Jenna? I was going to say greetings to uh, Mr. Hayes and uh, welcome him yes, sir. to the show tonight. And thanks for bringing that up, Roz. Thank you. Uh, Peace, brother. Peace. I just, uh, uh, I don't think my family would have been in this bad of shape if you uh, listened to my little rant that I can't say anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm being on my good behavior because we're online, but if you hear my rants on my channel, I just hey, go I'm head on in on it. Can you you give the people that's listening uh, where they can find you at real quick? Oh, I'm on uh, Black Junction. um, It's called the Haze of Our Lives. And then I'm on this uh, Anchor Anchor FM, also called the Haze of Our Lives. And then I'm on Black Avenger. It's also called the Haze of Our Lives. And I'm on Twitter. Twitter, It's called that. I'm just the Haze of Our Lives all over the place. (laughs) And you know that's that, that, H A Z E for everybody too, just to let you know. H A Z E Haze of our lives. Yes. Go ahead. Like brother. purple haze. Like, you know, purple haze yes. my favorite, you know, pain pain mellowing uh strain. But like I was yes, saying, sir. um I it, my family wouldn't be in this position when my uncle, you know, brought in his uh Trinidadian uh wife because um my my grandfather was the pretty High yellow, you know, uh, he was he was fully Adolf, but he, you could tell rape was hard and heavy in, in in this family from the slave catcher, and uh, my mm. mom messed it up. I heard people in my family say that my mother should have did, or my grandparents should have did with my mother what Maya Angelou's parents did with her, and steer her away from darker men. But she went down to Talladega College in Alabama, and, uh, you know, she got with uh, my donor. I refuse to call him my father because he has not done anything for me. But, and I'm going to say something that's probably rogue, but that's how I roll. The wrong grandparent died. I got a 91-year-old evil grandmother, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm only doing for her because I gave my grandfather a promise on on Christmas Day, he died on Christmas Day. I don't like Christmas anymore. 1996. He said, take care of your aunts and your grandmother. He didn't ask my uncle, my cooney for uh, capital uncle, because he knew his own son was messed up in the head just to bring that type of woman into this family. He saw something that that no one else saw. That's all I really want to say. Thanks for bringing that up, Ross. I'll be all right. You know, I just uh, diabetes got me down today, but uh, I'm getting ready to I go hope smoke. You feel better, man. You, 
you've been a con- you've been a concern of mine and um you know like i said make your religion your health make your religion yeah. your health because that is the best way in the situation you're in to actually uh really really i would say how would i put it Oh, it's been all suicidal. The who, it, all the people, it, it was suicidal. People, it was suicidal like 13 years ago. That's the reason why they got me the dog. You know, my, my yeah. physician, family physician was like, get that man a dog, and that dog will help him cope with my, – my doctor didn't know how deep it was. He thought I was just having a hard time coping with di- being a new diabetic then at that time. But it was mm. deeper than that, you know, yeah. and I just so happened – to borrow a 12-gauge shotgun from someone that didn't know how to clean their gun at all. I went to my favorite oak tree. I had a, a bunch of Zanny bars and some, some Percocet and some, some vodka, and I, I had my favorite weed, and I did my do. And when I got there and I pulled that trigger, it just went click. Twice. Mm. Wow. And then they they finally passed out at this tree, and then they sent me to go and get some help. But the pain is still there. I just suppress it. Don't don't use no cocaine if you've heard my rants and stuff. You know, my stepfather had me, you know, running packages for the Young Boys Incorporated. And I was, uh, mm. instead of paying us money, he was paying us with cocaine. So you had a nine-year-old, and my grandparents didn't know how a nine-year-old could mow four yards in one day and not be tired. I was high. Wow. That's that's what I was dealing with. But you know, it's just I'm I'm doing it. I'm I'm the prince of Good. paraphernalia. You can find me on eBay at Paraphernalia Palace. I'm doing it. Everybody said I couldn't get into the paraphernalia game. You can't sell that because you're black. Ha one day I will be the Costco of paraphernalia. Or I'll die trying. I wish you the best. That's all I got I to say. I wish you the best. Take, well, like I said, make your healthy religion. That's the greatest screw you to people who are trying to destroy you, especially because yeah. of what you're dealing with. And, um, you know, like I said, the biggest thing is being able to decompress and constructively get out those thoughts, ideas, and feelings. Um, it's very therapeutic, and it can help stop you from making really horrific decisions that are self-destructive. So, you know, as always, wish you the best, but I thought about you with some of the things we were talking about tonight. Um, just because there's, there's, there's too much, we're in a situation that's so precarious as a people. There's no room for petty arguments, man. Like, it's really about it. if you, if you for getting things together with the people, then that's what I'm dealing with. If you want some other stuff, I don't have time for it because we don't have time. We really don't. It's been 500 years, man. And we just just killed this girl not too long ago in her house. And like I said, I just think it's a test run. It's a test run, and you're going to start seeing rampant people getting shot in their house by police. It's going to be something that, that's the next stage of the psychological terrorism. If we don't yeah, get I'm about to on head, it, like ASAP. I'm, a, I'm about to head home and rant about that because that's wrong, man. That's, it's all the way wrong. And Horrible. now he retired. He retired. Just so yeah. they think that the, the 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 police department isn't going to be held responsible. But I'm not going to say what I want to say on this show. If you want yeah. to hear my take on how things should be fixed, 
I'm just going to say it the nice way. Hashtag, instead of asking what would Jesus do, start asking hashtag what would Nat Turner do. Gentlemen, I got to go. I'm pulling in my driveway. Okay. I will see you All next right. week. All right. All right. Brother. Peace and love. It's good to hear from you, you too. You and I hope you feel better. Thank you. Thank you. Peace, y'all. Peace. Peace. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anyone else wanted to chime in. Cujo, if you had anything you wanted to say too. Um, um, Brother Jam, if you had anything you wanted to say, you know, let us know. And I think there's another caller too. Yeah, yeah there's another caller from um, it like from three eight six. Three eight six. I think it's New York. Yeah, it's another New York number. I don't know who that is though. So yeah, if anybody had anything else, did you? Is there something you wanted to to talk about too? I think that was everything that I took notes on. Um, oh. I believe. Oh, you know what? The the origin of the Native Americans. That was the other one, and then Wall Street, and the fact that um, you know, when you see them, <laughs> when you see them um. Hey, we can uh, we can we can do a little small podcast and and just throw that out with that. It's getting okay. a little so uh. No, nah, I just uh just like Hayes was uh talking about, you know, it's a lot of different ways to handle this. I remember growing up in the eighties in uh Southside Chattanooga, we didn't have problems with the slave catchers. I mean, as long as you was in a particular area, they wouldn't even set foot. That uh that fearfulness has been relinquished by us. Yeah. Used to be a certain place that no matter what was going on in a particular area slave catchers had to catch you outside of that perimeter that that no longer holds true they they tend to go where they want to go when they want to go and like like hayes was saying until uh i hear a lot of people saying it's gonna become a time there was already a time and i've lived through that time and i'm not that old but there was a there was already a time to where if something like that happened, you didn't, didn't nobody ask the uh, slave catchers to go pick up another slave catcher. Uh, they found them. I mean, that's just how yeah. that happened. They, they found them or found yeah. her. Uh, Cause back then in the uh, late eighties, uh, nobody really cared whether it was a man or a woman, whoever did sure. the crime, you know, they was punished they equally. So, with extreme prejudice. Yes. Um, yep. It's like the slave catchers do us today. You know, Absolutely. Uh, they, they made examples out of people. And until it's a lot of people that talk about it, but it's not very many people who are willing to, uh, to deal with what comes with that. Uh, that's a big yeah. part of it is that a lot of people will say what they will do. But until you, it's it's kind of like uh, shooting a gun, you know. Um, you could talk about how good you could shoot and what have you, until you put up a uh, until you put up some type of target and you have to uh, you have to handle that high powered rifle or that pistol, whatever you're using. You're not going to be able to do it until you do it, and doing it the first time, you're not going to get it right. That's that's just how it works. Your body's not prepared your mind is not prepared and uh we only born with two things that we're afraid of uh falling and loud noises True. and 
them guns could make you do both. So if you're not prepared, you will hurt yourself or somebody that's not intended. And this is why we see a lot of people throughout at least this nation killing innocent people because they finally got that big gun, whether it's pistol or rifle in their hands. And they thought they was, uh, uh, Donna Kruger. That that's exactly what it is. They picked up, yeah. that big, uh, AK or either that AI 15 and they decided they was going to be a man or, or a grown woman and they squoze the trigger and they couldn't handle it. And somebody's somebody's child who had nothing to do with the incident ended up getting murdered instead of the person that they supposedly was after. So like this thing applies to so much more than what we discussed tonight. I just hope that we gave y'all just a small insight on the type of things that we believe that you should be paying attention to because you can apply this to politics. You could apply it to uh, your home life. Uh, You could apply it to work. You could apply it to your social life, uh, real and virtual. Like all of these things go together. And like I stated earlier, they're stacked. All of these strategies are stacked on top of each other. It's it's very easy to see once you start to understand it, but it's hard to explain. And if you don't have a popular, uh, if you don't have a popular platform or people don't know you, a lot of times it's hard to get that message out because people believe so much of the foolishness, the truth, like brother Kaiba said, is unbelievable. So with that being said, peace, much love to all of you who, uh, who rocks with us. We are getting things prepared to move forward in the future. Hopefully y'all will be a part of that. Uh, with that being said, brother Ross, I'll let you have it and take us out. No problem. Yeah. Just, uh, thanks to everyone for being with us. I hope that um that the program was constructive and that you were able to get some um great information out of it. Uh hopefully you learned some things and um you know, if there's any questions anyone has that they weren't able to ask tonight or anything like that or things they wanted to say that they weren't able to say tonight, you can always chime in next week and uh get your thoughts and ideas out or any questions that you had as well. That's never a problem. Just I would say if anything, just write the questions down so that way you don't forget. Because of course by next week you probably done been through so much in that week you'll forget. So um just thanks to everybody for spending your Tuesday uh evening with us. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Um thank you. Just just seriously thank you. Um thanks to Brother Cujo, thanks to Brother Hayes, um thanks to Brother Jam. And all the other calls and listeners um, that may be listening from the internet and for those who listen to the podcast later, um, hopefully it's some great information for you to take from this and be able to apply it to your life in some form or fashion, which is great. So we're going to say the prayer now and then close out for the evening. Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of Black self-respect at all times and all places, each and every time that we are in contact with another Black person. It has been time. Let's replace white supremacy with justice, ASAP, and let's end the prison industrial complex and human trafficking as well. 
And also, before I say the last prayer, I just want to say this um, quote, because I think it's something for us to keep in mind as we really try to navigate the Hegelian dialectic, the way that it's being played on us in all 11 areas of people, activity, economics, education, entertainment, healthcare, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, war, and technology. Um, So this is it here. If European culture is insanity, then at the fundamental level that humans define and perceive reality, we, as Africans and people of color, have a very serious problem. If the culture minority, cultural minority becomes the power majority, and this minority through military, media, and religious might force the majority cultures to adopt its culture as their own, then insanity becomes the norm and is redefined as sanity. Accepting another's reality as your reality makes their reality yours. If the global majority is right, then Europeans are wrong. How dare they stand in judgment? European cultural imperialism. If the same insane can convince the same that insanity is sanity, then the same majority become insane and insanity becomes universal and comes to be seen as sanity. Those individuals or groups who dare to hold on to their original sanity become universally depicted as the truly insane or backward. And those who are carriers of the original insanity become universally, universally depicted as the truly sane or modern. Indeed, Europeans are a minority. So this is what it is. They have convinced us as the power majority, even though they're the physical minority, that their culture, their sick, twisted culture is sanity. And the overwhelming majority of us have actually embraced that and lived that as our daily reality, and we're comfortable in it. And those of us who hold on to our original sanity are the ones who are ostracized, abused, and mistreated by the majority, as they say in the 5%, it's by the 85% who really don't know what's going on. And the people in control, (laughs) the people in control, that 10% continue to dominate the 90%, and the only only people who really know what's going on are the 5%, and they're the ones who stand out and are most ostracized, mistreated, and abused by the 85. And we need to end that. (laughs) We need to actually spread that 5% and make that the majority and let the ignorant and the lost and the ones who are trapped in the Hegelian dialectic, let that be the 5%. So let's work towards that. And um, let me say the other prayer now. I am in the love of the all, and all love is in me. I am a part of the all, and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all, and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. I can be all that I wish in the all, as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is. I am. The all can, I can, the all does, I do. And like Baba Kaba said, right supremacy is a mountain. Only one can be at the top. With Africans, there was a plateau. So everyone could be on top. We are communal central people. Let's remember that and let's use that as the basis of our true global liberation. Peace and love. Thank you for spending your Tuesday evening with us. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you stay safe and out of the hands of those slave catchers. The simplest thing you can do if you drive is to make sure you wear your seatbelt. If you do partake of um, anything that is intoxicating, stay where you are indoors until you are sober and do not hit the street until you are clear of mind. So that way they can't harass you for being intoxicated in public. And do everything possible you can to minimize contact in order to minimize conflict with not just race soldiers and uh, colonizers, but especially amongst your own people, whether that's family, friends or acquaintances that happen to be black. 
One love, good night, stay safe, and create a willing. We will definitely be here next week, same time, and hopefully we'll have more to share. And that, you know, like I said, anyone has any questions or comments, feel free to chime in. We look forward to it. One love, peace. Peace. Yahoo. Bad brother. Oh, okay. I thought I thought I heard somebody talking. My apologies. No, I just said Yahoo and Ubuntu. That's what I was going to say. Okay. Well, here we go. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. Because 